How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's a lion! It's a lion! It's a lion! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Righty, Gary. It's been three weeks since we recorded. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. It's because you were in New Orleans for a week, and time doesn't work the same down there. That's true. <laughs> we left for the airport at like uh, five o'clock in the morning. And, Gross. Yeah. And there were bars still open and people in them. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> man, I was like, I'm old now. I was done at like 10. Oh, yeah. At, 10, at, 10, at o'clock, best, I'm, 10 o'clock. I'm brushing my teeth, getting ready for bed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to. Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies. Also, The Evil Dead and the people who made it. You see what I did there? Because it, I mean, it's how like nobody's favorite movie is Evil Dead. Mm. Well, you didn't say your name, Gary. Oh, I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. <laughs> hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. And I'm always ready to party down. Writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis, thank you so much for deciding to join us for our first episode of our new series covering the work of Mr. Sam Raimi, titled Sam Raimi, The Entertainer. This is where we put in that the ice cream man song, The Entertainer. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> is that the one that played on y'all's ice cream trucks when you were a kid? The Entertainer? I feel like it's a regional thing. Do you remember what song your ice cream trucks played? Uh, I, I really don't. Wow. I was too poor to listen to ice cream trucks. Justin. You couldn't even listen to them. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as you Todd's know. Todd's from Appalachia. They, they didn't have <laughs> enough money for the rights. Todd grew up in the city. Me and you grew up more country than he did. Yeah, that's, that's probably, probably true. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you may know, if you listen to our last series, uh, a lot of the stories about James Cameron that we talked about during that series on pretty much every set, except for Avatar, at which point he'd kind of chilled out. Uh, those stories always painted him as this tyrannical, dictatorial, and and very, uh, frankly, difficult man to work for. Uh, he's a guy who, you know, he was known for screaming at his actors, belittling his crew members, anything that meant getting the job done. So as we begin this series on Sam Raimi, I want to start it off with this quote from Cliff Robertson. He's the guy who played Uncle Ben in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. This is what he had to say about Sam Raimi. We hear and read of the legendary tyrannical directors and some of the ones that were flawed, but we don't hear enough, because I guess there aren't that many, about directors who have a benevolence not only among the cast but the crew. So when you see Sam walking carefully and quietly amongst his cast and crew, you get the feeling of a director who is conscious of his responsibilities, but even more conscious of his sensitivities to the people around him. It's very rare. Some directors have egos and expect you to genuflect when they walked on set, but he is a remarkable man. So I guess it's safe to say that this is going to be a very different story 
than than James Cameron's. Hopefully, yeah. a shorter story than James Cameron's. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> for sure. Raimi's story is an interesting one. He grew up as a film enthusiast. He went the DIY route on his first film, working about as far outside of the studio system as one could work. But by sheer will, raw talent, and a deep understanding of what it takes to entertain an audience, Raimi, over the course of his career, would become one of the most successful directors in Hollywood. But before he was directing summer blockbusters and reviving the comic book genre, in the late 1970s, Sam Raimi, along with a bunch of his friends from Detroit, went into the woods with a couple of cameras and a whole lot of fake blood and created one of the most iconic horror films of all time, The Evil Dead. The guy that's renting it says it's an old place. A little run down. But it's right up in the mountains. Well, it might not be that bad. I believe I have made a significant find in the Kandarian ruins. Naturan de Monto. Shut it off. Roughly translated. Book of the Dead. Now, as we do with each episode, we hold nothing back. That means spoilers are inbound. So if you haven't watched the movie yet, you might want to shut it off. Shut it off. Shut it off. You're telling people to turn off our podcast. Well, I was just trying to invoke a feeling that <laughs> that, that scene from Evil Dead. Yeah, I get it. I work very hard, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I did understand the reference, Todd. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> it did I, I make wa- me want to put you in a basement. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> uh, Sam Raimi's name is synonymous with the horror genre. That's what people think of when you mention Sam Raimi. And with good reason, a big chunk of his filmography is horror. Uh, the movie that put him on the map, the movie we're talking about today, is horror. And almost all of the films that he's produced are horror films. But Raimi didn't set out to be a horror movie director. Uh, unlike a lot of horror directors, he didn't grow up as a monster kid. You don't hear all these stories about him you know, obsessing over monsters when he was a kid like you do with so many other horror directors. Sam Raimi was born in Royal Oak, Michigan in 1959, a week before Halloween. Uh, his was the first generation of kids who kind of grew up in a world where nearly everyone had televisions in their homes, which gave uh, the young Sam Raimi more access to older films than any generation had before. Unlike the movie brats like, you know, Steven Spielberg, John Carpenter, who are about a decade older than Raimi, he didn't have to go to a theater to watch movies. Sam Raimi had unlimited access to them right in his own living room. And because of television, Sam became obsessed with older genre films, stuff like King Kong and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, anything featuring the work of Ray Harryhausen and old comedy shows like The Little Rascals, Abbott and Costello, and most significantly, The Three Stooges, which is very apparent when you watch his films, especially his horror output. Hey, Justin, I wasn't super familiar with uh, Ray Harryhausen, uh, and I ha- actually went and looked him up. Can you bullet point like a couple of key references of his work? Harryhausen? I mean, uh, the, the Sinbad movies, I feel like in this case, are the most significant because you're mm-hmm. going to see a lot of... You're going to see a lot of uh, that pop up specifically in Army of Darkness when we get to that, especially the, the like uh, Jason and the Argonauts, things like that, especially in those 
the skeletons that you see, the stop motion skeletons that you see in, yeah. in Army of Darkness, that is pulled straight out of a Ray Harryhausen movie. Also, Todd, you should definitely go watch some Ray Harryhausen movies. They're a blast. He is also, yeah, like, they, check they out look, the Pumpkinhead like episode. Remember, I referenced that the uh, the dude in the suit was yeah. trying to move like uh, a oh, Harryhausen yeah. creation in the church. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Ray Harryhausen is kind of like the godfather of stop motion animation gotcha. like he, he, he was one of the ones who used it most extensively during that time period i mean there were guys like willis o'brien who did king kong prior to that who were obviously pioneering but uh ray harryhausen's name is like that is that is what people think of when they think of ray harryhausen as his stop motion there's some really great documentaries out there about him as well if you want to check them out I, I, that you can find streaming pretty easily nice so like a lot of those other film brats Raimi's first experience making movies came when a relative brought home a movie camera. This is how this always goes, it seems. A dad brings home, an uncle brings home a movie camera, somebody brings home a movie camera, and the little uh, the little movie curious kid picks it up and starts making his own little movies. Mm. Uh, well, in this case, it was Sam's father, Leonard, who would shoot these elaborate home movies on his Eastman Kodak 8mm camera. Uh, he would even like re-edit them sometimes to play around with like the, the time the way time worked in the movies like he would he would actually edit his home movies which a lot of people probably don't do but that actually inspired Raimi to do the same he could kind of see what his father was able to do by editing things and and kind of playing around with reality a little bit by doing so mm-hmm. uh, and Sam Raimi lo- really liked that so he started making his own movies or he wanted to make his own movies and by the time he was 13 years old he had purchased his own camera with money that he'd made by raking the neighbor's leaves and with this little super 8 camera he and his little brother Ted would shoot these little, you know, homemade movies in their backyard. Now, uh, I, I do want to have a little side note that Sam Raimi is as obsessed with as he was with movies. They were not his only love. Uh, he was also a big fan of baseball. The, he was a Detroit Tigers fan, naturally, uh, and comic books, especially Marvel comic books, which were introduced to him by another of his brothers, Sanders. It's going to be really hard to keep up with all the Raimi brothers here. I'm just going to warn you. Uh, Sanders, unfortunately, passed away when Raimi was, was pretty young, which is why... Uh, he had one reason that he had such a connection to comic books is because that kind of connected him to his brother. I think his brother drowned when he was like 15 years old or something like that. He was oh. pretty young. Yeah. Uh, now, Raimi's baseball obsession doesn't come up a whole lot in many of his films until, you know, he made a baseball movie with Kevin Costner years and years later. Uh, but other than that, you don't see a lot of baseball in his movies. But that comic book influence is all over his filmography, even before he started making Spider Man movies. You can see. Uh, the, the the love of comic books, is, we'll get into that, especially in, what, about three episodes when we talk about Darkman. So as he grew in his in his movie fandom, Raimi started surrounding himself with like-minded film buffs, folks like Josh Becker and Scott Spiegel, who would go on to be directors in their own right. And then in 1975, Sam met a guy who'd go on to be his most important and recognizable collaborator, Bruce Campbell. Campbell had started acting as a teenager and had made a few Super 8 films with his friend, with Scott Spiegel. Uh, and then when he crossed paths with Sam Raimi in the eighth grade, they immediately hit it off. They were they were like-minded guys. They both loved, they, they, they shared a love of things like the Three Stooges, you know. Uh, so they really hit it off. And then Raimi, Campbell, Spiegel, and a few others, including eventually a, a girl named Ellen Sandweiss, formed the Metropolitan Film Group. This is at their high school, or I guess their junior high at this point. Uh, sometimes referred to as the Michigan Mafia, this group of kids, they finance their own amateur films by raking leaves and shoveling snow for their neighbors. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
a lot of these movies were sheer slapstick. They were just silly little things. They were inspired by the group's love of the Three Stooges uh, with pie fights and elaborate chase scenes in them. Yeah, a lot of those were actually just pretty much blatant ripoffs. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would. But really you got like to start somewhere, right? Do. I mean, that that's still even ripping off someone else when you're at that age you're emulating what you want to do and it helps you build your own style exactly you know i mean yeah. every director has done that if they were making films when they were a kid they were basing it on other things that they had seen and they would take turns directing and starring in these films Raimi wasn't like always directing sometimes scott spiegel would direct sometimes bruce campbell would direct uh, and all of them were born entertainers uh, none of them more so than Raimi himself who, in addition to making movies, he would star in school plays, and he fancied himself an amateur magician. After high school, the group briefly went their separate ways. Uh, Campbell went to college at the Western Michigan University, while Ramey and uh, another one of his brothers, Ivan, went to Michigan State University, where they continued creating amateur films. And it was in college that Ramey met another important collaborator, a guy named uh, Rob Tapert, who was his brother Ivan's roommate. So Rob would end up starring in the Ramey brothers' next film, a little uh, film called The Happy Valley Kid. And they see, they would screen, they'd make these little movies and they would screen them at college. They'd charge admission. They'd screen them for like the local film clubs and things at college. And they did that with The Happy Valley Kid. And they actually made a little bit of a profit on this one. Uh, they brought in about $5,000 in ticket sales. And the film only cost them about $1,000 to make. So they pocketed four grand. You know, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. Well, after the Happy Valley Kid, Ramey, Tapert, and Campbell would embark on their most ambitious film to date called It's Murder with an exclamation point. That's part of the title. It's very important. Yeah. Uh, it's Murder is a comedy about a police detective played by Scott Spiegel trying to solve the murder of a wealthy head of a peculiar family. So at 77 minutes long, it was Raimi's first uh, official quote-unquote feature-length film and marked his first collaboration with a guy named Tom Sullivan who contributed to the film's sound design and also created the poster for the film's premiere. So it was so it's pronounced, it's murder! Yeah, you have to, yeah, that, all okay, caps. Okay, all right, all right. All, all caps, gotcha. all caps with an exclamation point. Uh, <laughs> it's murder didn't have the same success as the Happy Valley Kid, unfortunately. It barely recouped its $2,000 budget. So this was kind of a lesson to them, like what do audiences want? So when it came time to make their next film, they took a look at the box office and realized that in the world of independently produced, low-budget films, horror was king. According to everybody, this was kind of a, a Rob Taper edict, it became. Like he'd actually been doing research anyway and come up with the idea and presented to them that horror's the easiest way to spend less money and potentially make a lot more. And now their anecdotal evidence is going to back that up, obviously. But I mean, and this is all stuff we we've easily seen ourselves, like in everything we've talked about. Oh sure. yeah. I mean, going back to our first episode, the night of the living dead. Oh yeah. That's, yeah. that's exactly why they made the night of the living dead is because it was a cheap way to make a movie that they knew was going to make money. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, at this point, it probably even seems like to most people, it's kind of a duh concept, but keep in mind, this is the late seventies and these are, kids that are not living in hollywood this right. is them organically putting in the time and working through all of this it's just from they're going from being artsy to thinking about this business wise yeah so i think even around this time i remember uh, on the commentary they talked about they had another script it was called relentless uh that was apparently a battle between a ball wrecker and a bulldozer uh, Rob Tapert said That's Sam, awesome. <laughs> Sam had written that, but they knew that that would be a lot more difficult to get financed. Right. <laughs> and so he had been looking at how, you know, like most people's first movies typically get played at drive-ins. 
and mm-hmm. there was no you know videotape market or whatever at this time. So uh, yeah, uh, it was a drive-in driven business. And part of the research that Rob was doing is he was really seeing that horror movies get played at the drive-in. That's super popular. That's how mm-hmm. filmmakers break in in the late seventies. Uh, there's no Sundance independent film festivals, you know, there's not all that stuff to yeah. to showcase like your new stuff. So another thing I thought was cool that I was hearing them talk about in some stuff is just that at this time too, you had to have something that like, you know, not just, you didn't think of it as like getting nationally thrown out into a drive-in. These were all small theaters and not, not huge conglomerate theaters. So it wasn't like a a regal, like multiplex. Yeah. Yeah. So they were saying like, uh, dimension was a distributor in their area, uh, like handled like Detroit and Ohio. So they, you'd meet with these, what they called sub distributors at the time. And they handled like three States at a time. It sounds like, uh, wrestling territory i was just I was thinking that literally, like wrestling that's territory. where i was going <laughs> <laughs> it's like you would you would you would actually have like territories that you would go to and so you'd hit one territory play your shit through get it hopefully get it popular and you move on to the next territory when you've worn out your welcome in the wood and so uh and these people haven't seen it yet so it just keeps going for a while but anyway so, yeah, so that's how they're starting to think now. You know, they're not like Macho Man and he wears out his welcome in this territory, so he moves on to another one. He's not a good example. He was popular everywhere all <laughs> right. the time. But uh, anyway, you're starting to see now, you know, no pun intended, they're starting to think big picture. Right. And so that's cool for these kids who have worked so hard, you know, like just making their own thing this whole time. And very forward thinking. Yeah. Didn't didn't Relentless eventually get made by Michael Bay as uh, Transformers? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> that's good Uh, so you know this was the late 70s uh the texas chainsaw massacre just a couple years earlier mm -hmm. had become a major box office hit. i hear you todd (laughs) the 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 one uh genre movie podcast host that doesn't like the texas chainsaw massacre (laughs) one of the greatest horror films of all time Yeah, we'll forgive you for that one, Todd. No, That's we cool. won't. No, I, I <laughs> say no speak for yourself, pal. <laughs> I, do not forgive you. I don't forgive you for that. Listen, if you want my card, you're going to have to come pry it out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> Send leather face. <laughs> and then uh, 1977 comes around. Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, which only cost 230 grand to make earned $25 million at the box office. So this is what they're seeing. These are the trends that they're seeing as far as uh, to, to kind of serve as the template for what they want to do. They saw the, the the Michigan mafia, they saw the horror genre as their way to get their foot in the door, a way to use everything that they had learned while making their amateur films uh, to make something that they knew already had a built-in audience. People are going to see it just because it's a horror movie is <laughs> kind of what they're thinking. It's it's a really smart way to go. I mean, yeah, find it what people like and just make your own and charge them for it. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> what I do, do they, with porn. There you go. <laughs> so, they started going to local drive-ins. They started watching these low-budget horror films to kind of get a, an idea for what worked and what didn't work. Uh, of course, Sam Raimi had no experience as a horror director. None of these little short films that they'd been making were horror themed whatsoever. The stuff that he'd been directing so far had been slapstick comedy and madcap melodrama. But Raimi was confident. He he believed that he could pull it off. But the, you still have to convince potential investors. Just because you just because you're confident doesn't mean that people are going to give you money. Uh, so the Michigan Mafia made a plan to make a short Super Eight horror film that would demonstrate Raimi's ability to tell a scary story. 
The resulting seven-minute film was called Clockwork, and it starred Scott Spiegel as a killer stalking a woman, played by a girl named Cheryl Guttridge, uh, who's home alone at night. That's the problem right there, is if you got a woman at home alone at night, the odds are is she's in a horror film. <laughs> or <true>? OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I said horror film, Gary. <laughs> I feel weird that that's the second porn type reference i've made in the past few minutes in the past like two minutes yeah 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 that's good (laughs) uh so clockwork showed that Raimi could handle darker subject matter this is a totally humorless film with some pretty grisly violence there's no like there's no there are no pie fights in clockwork Uh, and once the filmmakers had deemed it a successful venture because they really just made this for themselves to say hey can i do this so they, they watched and they're like okay sam definitely can do the horror thing So once they figured that out, they embarked on a lengthier, more ambitious short film, one that they would use as a sales tool to impress potential investors. I mean, this is really kind of a a great how-to. I remember getting into this movie, sort of showing my hand here for the end of the episode, but one of the reasons I loved this movie was, A, it's a great movie, but B, it's also a really great how-to for young filmmakers, and I... I started playing out the scenario of like, oh man, I wonder, you know, what it would have been like if the crew of the original Evil Dead had had something like social media, yeah, or crowdfunding. Well, shit, or they probably like would that. have like just filmed this on their iPhones. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. but this is it's such a great place to start for anyone who's seriously considering venturing into filmmaking. What's right. also to me like this is also showing the passion they have for making movies yes. because uh, as we're going to, we're going to get into the making of this, but it is an incredibly, di- this was an incredibly difficult movie to make mm-hmm. and they could have given up at any moment, but the fact that they, they kind of powered through and got this movie made shows that they, they weren't doing this just as a lark. This is something they truly believed in. Yeah. As much trouble as they go through. Um, I, 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 the more I read about it, the more I felt like a piece of shit that I've never made a movie. Cause I'm like, you have it so easy right now. These you're guys you're going, a piece of shit for so many more reasons. So many reasons. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But, but Todd's right. This is this whole thing they're doing here is a great idea because the, the thing with the super eight movie is that it helped uh, validate you because you can, create something that can scare somebody where they are like you can you know this wasn't you know again not huge vhs market or something like that so you could take it to someone and show them what you can do Mm -hmm. and uh, i mean it's literally something not to jump ahead but like the cohen's who we're going to bring up uh it it gave them the same idea this movie gave them the idea to create their own short to sell a movie later sam raimi specifically gave them the idea uh, which we'll we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But it was really not just them seeing this, but Sam Raimi going, hey, you should do what we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, it's almost like still even to this day, like you, 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 you'll you see like uh, shows do a pilot episode uh, that you make and it may or may not ever get picked up by somebody, but you try to right. get it out there. Um, like it's another- so funny in Philadelphia, they shot the pilot on that for like 300 bucks. And I think a hundred dollars of that went to beer <laughs> and then they showed it to the guys at FX and now they're in season like 17 or something. Right. Yeah, yeah it's true. And, and, and it made me think of uh, people like Guillermo del Toro is famous for like helping some of these people out, but there's been movies more recently like that. Like I think of like movies like mama or lights out or something like that. Those horror movies that were made and like put out on YouTube. 
and mm-hmm. somebody sees them yeah. and it's like holy shit look at this thing Let's yeah make a whole they, movie out of it exactly yeah so when Raimi began writing the script for his horror film uh, he was inspired by a couple of things one was the Egyptian book of the dead which he had learned about in college he was taking like an Egyptian history you know class in college and he learned about the Egyptian book of the dead so that kind of sparked something in his head and oddly enough Shakespeare's Macbeth uh, was part of the inspiration on this because if, I don't know if you've read Macbeth, but there's a there's uh, there's a scene where the forest comes alive uh, around a human dwelling. So you can imagine where that plays into Evil Dead. Although I, I, I'm not I'm no Shakespeare um, expert. I'm a little fuzzy on the details. I haven't read Macbeth since high school, but I do not remember Burnham Wood raping anyone in that movie in, in that book. So it's a it's a different version. It um, <laughs> that was that hit the cutting room floor. It yeah. was it was for the remix that Sam Raimi planned on making. This was <laughs> this was a really his pitch to make oddly enough Macbeth. the uh, the Coens well one of the Coens made a Macbeth just what last year. I uh, you know I never saw it but a tree oh, really have fucked someone. It's yeah. good it's good but there are no tree fucking scenes. In well I'm out. <laughs> Shakespeare was like this doth not work. <laughs> <laughs> well so they begin work on this little short film which uh, at the time was still called the Book of the Dead and Bruce Campbell is cast in the lead. As a character named uh, Bruce. Oh, okay. Uh, Ellen Sandweiss, uh, she played Bruce's girlfriend in this. She was a character named um, Ellen. Oh. And Scott Spiegel was cast as a, uh, I think his name was Scott. (laughs) Oh, I was going to go with Jeff. It threw me off. <laughs> very creative. Very, very creative. creative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sam says he remembers sitting in ancient history class at Michigan State University around 77 to 79, somewhere in there. And they were studying, obviously, like you said, the Book of the Dead. And he thought the thing that stood out to him, this will make a great title for a horror picture, is what he said. Just hit it. It sounded perfect. It, yeah, I mean, it, it is a great title. They're not going to use it, but it's a great title. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's also a nice evolution point for Raimi, too, because he says, quote, when making Super 8 movies with myself, Scott Spiegel, John Cameron, Bill Kurt, Mike Ditz, Tim Quill, and the rest of the gang, we really didn't write scripts back then. We just get together. We just jot a bunch of ideas down on paper and just started shooting stuff. So this was a new thing for us in college to actually have to work on a script for something. He thinks for him, it originally started when he was working with... uh, uh, Rob uh, Tafit and his brother, Ivan, on the Happy Valley Kid, he mentioned. Uh, he said that was the first time they'd actually written down dialogue for anything and kind of played out <laughs> they a just scene. They spitballing before that? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, he said for that one, he would give notes with like dialogue and stuff to his film professor at the time and uh, Rob and uh, actually see if they could work out a scene, like what it, what it would be all about. He said when they started talking about making a feature film, like him and Bruce and Rob, Uh, that they started to actually sit down and write a script. And he said he remembers he was working with an independent study professor. Uh, He said he thinks her name is uh, Sheila Roberts. And he wrote a script for that project. He got to pick something to do independent study on, and he chose to do a script. And uh, she actually worked with him and helped him write a full-length screenplay uh, that he wrote. He got to use it for his grade. Uh, he said it ended up a little bit different, but he it was probably like a 58-page document, and he got the credit, and that was his first real screenplay. He also says most difficult creative task he's ever had to do in his life. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess if you've never done it before, it's, you know, he, he wasn't taking like, he wasn't reading, uh, what's his name, the how to write a screenplay in three you know, the three act structure, he wasn't doing all that stuff. So (laughs) if you have no background in that, I mean, where do you start? So with this little short film that they're making, 
Uh, Tom Sullivan, remember, he's the one he, he worked on clockwork. He did the some of the sound design of the poster. He's an artist. Uh, but Tom Sullivan was a monster kid who, unlike Sam Raimi, he, he grew up loving monsters and loving looking at like the makeup of like Jack Pierce and guys like that. He, he grew up reading Forrest Ackerman's famous monsters magazine. So with this little short film, Tom Sullivan's really in his element as the creator of the film special makeup effects. You you hear him talk about this guy, by the way, they they act like he is just a godsend. Like he is, they said he could do anything. Like he yeah. was good with a camera. He could do effects. He could do, he was doing like mat work. He was doing all of this different stuff. Like he would just show up and show you something and it was amazing, you know? And so it just, I don't know. They, they really praise this guy as like being a crucial part to them getting this movie done. Yeah, I mean, he is a, a huge element on this film. So the 30-minute short that they're making was filmed on the Tapert family property, and when it was time to get it in front of potential investors, Rob Tapert managed to talk a local theater into showing the film, which at this point is uh, titled Within the Woods, before midnight showings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And this is like in the heyday of the Rocky Horror cult. You know, Rocky Horror, is. I just finished reading uh, Jay Hoberman's uh, midnight movies and it is unbelievable how big the rocky horror cult was in the late 70s and early 80s wow. so this is kind of at the at the cusp of all of that so they're like well let's play this little short film before rocky horror because people are coming out in droves to see rocky horror and then we'll get our little our little 30 minute short film in front of in front of these people that's why mm. yeah that's totally why they picked it it was like a uh, bruce campbell I, I assume this is the real name he called it the punch and judy theater um, he said they go. <laughs> that can't they, be the real name. That's what he said. He kept saying it was the Punch and Judy Theater. He's like, we knew they played Rocky Horror on the weekends. They were weird, and he said so. We had to go there, and he was like, and then you know, you were talking about the difficulty. I mean, this is the stuff they were they were going through. They were seeking out places that they knew it would work, so they went mm -hmm. to this theater, and then they only have a Super Eight, so it's not even working like a normal movie. So they're right. talking about how they had to get like special bulbs, loud uh, like huh. load up speakers and different types of wires. They had not like here. blown it up. They did, had not blown it up to thirty five millimeter or anything. Right, they were, they right. Were, you know, projecting it on eight millimeter. Wow. Yeah, and so they. So they were having, yeah, it was it was like a lot of work to make this happen. Well, one of these screenings, a journalist from the Detroit Free Press happened to be in attendance, and he interviewed the Michigan Mafia after the screening. And then in his write-up, uh, the short was actually compared favorably to Night of the Living Dead and Carrie, which had only come out a couple years earlier, which, of course, that brought in more audiences and more potential investors. And one person who attended a screening as a result of that newspaper article was Tim Philo, who was another local amateur filmmaker. So after the screening, he kind of saw the film and he was like, these guys have got a lot of potential. Clearly, uh, they might need a little bit of help on the technical side of things. So I'm going to see what I can do. So he walked up to them after the screening and said, whatever you guys are doing next, I want to be involved. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, the the article, and I I think this may be the same thing. I'm thinking it was this Michael McWilliams article, and then it could be two totally different things from different screenings, but they mentioned him in the commentary that it was uh, that he put in his uh, article that it's scarier than Prophecy and Amityville Horror combined. Prophecy wow. of the Bear movie? Uh, no, I, I don't think it's a bear movie, is it? No, it's, yeah, it's uh, a mutated bear movie. Is it a mutated bear I, I'm no, I mean, trying to look it up. I don't remember. It was something like 70, 70 something. Yeah, it's but, a mutated uh, bear movie. I mean, there's another prophecy movie that came out in the 90s with Christopher Walken. But Oh, see, that's the one I was thinking of. Unless they're the time prophecy. travelers. It's well, not there was that. one in 79. Oh, you know what? It might be. Because, oh, because the, the thing said something about a mother. 
Oh, the poster says she lives. Don't move. Don't breathe. There's nowhere to run. She will find you. But it's that bear, I bet. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah the, and the poster has like an embryo of a like yeah, a, that's yeah, the of, a, of a bear. Yeah. It's a fun movie. Never seen it. <laughs> I want to check it out. It's, um, yeah. John Frankenheimer. We'll put it We'll put it on the Cinema Shock Roulette uh, list. Maybe it'll come up one day. Nice. In uh, the article, though, I did read like a quote from it. He says, uh, it will probably never be advertised alongside the glossy big budget horror movies of our time, but you won't easily forget a locally produced little film called Within the Woods. Nice. Oh, oh and, and that reminds me. So, so you, we were just talking about this Super 8 thing. So they, they were going to blow it up to 35 and they found this Argentinian film company that said that they could blow the thing up for them. And they had seen some example they gave, and it worked really, really well. And so they were going with it. So they shot another short, they said, called Terror at Lulu's. And they even hired a fancy cameraman, and they said the footage came back black because oh, the cameraman had made some mistake he left, he with left the, lens the shutter. It wasn't, he said it wasn't the lens cap. <laughs> he had done something fucky with the shutter. And so... He said, we had to reshoot the fucking movie <laughs> like the, that short. And oh, he said man. it was devastating. He said, yeah. and then we got it reshot and we, they said they took it to this company and they blew it up and it totally did not work as advertised. They said the grain on the thing was the size of golf balls. Oh, I bet. Oh, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> so, so anyway, he said, uh, Sam says that that led to them using 16 millimeter, yeah. uh, from there, uh, which of course, uh, like Bruce Campbell's like, we felt like big badasses then. We're like using the real camera. <laughs> we've, we've doubled the amount of millimeters. <laughs> uh, and Sam said they'd seen some people do 16 millimeter. Uh, they played with it in some shorts before. Uh, but back then, you you didn't buy cameras. You, you Or you had to buy cameras. You couldn't rent them. Right. And just, you know, they people weren't willing to usually loan them out or anything. And this was going to blow their whole budget out of anything that they could even manage. Anyway, so now they needed a cameraman, uh, a legit one. And so then your boy, Tim. Uh, Tim Filo shows up. up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was at Wayne State at a student and he had come over there and said that. So he invited them to come see a movie he had shot. And Sam says they went there and they watched the film and he turned to Rob and said, you know what? There is an image on that screen. I say we hire him. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and, that's, how the, out, and that's how the evil dad got his cinematographer. Yeah. A guy, he knew how to use a camera. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do want to, I, I should have done this at the beginning of the show, but I, I didn't do it. But I, I feel like we should acknowledge some of our sources on this. Uh, my main source, I had two main sources for this Uh this episode and probably for several episodes in the series, one of which is a, a, a book called The Unseen Force, the films of Sam Raimi. It was written by John Kenneth Muir. John Kenneth Muir was also, uh, he also wrote a book that served as one of our sources on our Toby Hooper series uh, back early on in the show. And also the other source that I used a lot was uh, If Chins Could Kill, Bruce Campbell's autobiography, which such a good book <laughs> is one of the most entertaining autobiographies you'll ever read. It's, yeah. it's hilarious. And he's got a lot of great stories. He's a great storyteller. Uh, I would highly recommend reading that book. Yeah. Even if that kind of, even if that kind of material isn't your normal go-to. Yeah. Seriously. The way it, that he writes that one. It's, yeah. It's yeah. so well-written. It's it really, really, is, really good. Really fun. I guess I, I would say my source is, as I was Bruce Campbell's bodyguard one time, I tell the story anytime <laughs> I get a chance. So uh, he called yeah. you an asshole, right? Yeah. Multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I don't know if I've ever told that story on this show, but yeah, he was at a college doing a tour for If Chins Could Kill. And uh, my buddy knew I liked movies and these kind of movies specifically is like, hey, do you know who Bruce Campbell is? I'm like, hell yeah. He's he worked for like the university board or something. I was like, well, do you want to come show him around campus and hang out with him? Make sure nobody tries to kill him. <laughs> I was like, sure. And so we got to go have dinner and all kinds of stuff. It was a lot of fun. He was a great guy. And uh, but the the one thing we're talking about here is we I got to watch his line walking up to his autograph after his speaking gig and him and his manager were very much like, all right, listen, this is going to take forever. So the line comes up. Each person gets two things signed. That's it. Bruce will sign two things and move it along. He's like, you know, just make sure you enforce that, please. Like, don't make Bruce look like a prick. Like just, just make sure people break. Teaching. Your job is for you to look like a prick, right? Exactly. Yeah, not Bruce. So it was like very, it was very well emphasized. And uh, so I'm standing there watching everybody come through. I'm like the last step before you get to Bruce. And this girl comes up and she's got like five things in her hands. And I'm like, sorry, we're only doing two things today. You can only sign two. So you have to pick two of those. And she's like, Oh, my brother can't be here. And, like, he loves Bruce Campbell. It's his favorite person. Like, I got to get this stuff signed. And I'm, I'm sorry. It's two things. Only two. So just, you know, pick one for you and one for him or something. You know, I'm like going back and forth with her. And Bruce is like, Gary, come on, man. Come on, honey. Come over here. And like, <laughs> waves her in. And uh, he's like, just don't mind him. I'll sign everything. And uh, so he does. He signs everything for the girl. So sweet. Takes the pictures. Does the hugs. She leaves. And he turns to me, he says, I said two things, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a Bruce Campbell move. Uh, I love that guy. I, we, I met him uh, once. I think you were with me, Gary, when, when I met him, when he was touring for his other yeah. book. Yeah, for the uh, next one. I was yeah, there, too. Yeah, yeah, Make Love the Bruce Campbell Way. He was touring with that book and also with uh, his uh, film that he directed, The Man with a Screaming Brain. Yep. I think at that I think at that screening, you could only get one thing signed, though, I think. I think that's uh, right. But and, I, and for I, the record, I do remember walking up to the table with him there and being like, I don't know if you remember me, but he's like, I remember you, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got my copy of uh, Man with a Screaming Brain, the comic book uh, adaptation, which he also wrote, signed, which I have framed on my wall. Nice. Yeah, he's, a, he's a nice guy. I yeah, like Bruce Campbell. He's, he one, of the, he's one of the good celebrities. <laughs> Well, Ramey, Tapert, and Campbell and the rest of the gang were well on their way at this point to getting their first professional movie off the ground with only one thing standing in their way, money. Luckily, uh, this crew was pretty adept at fundraising. They, uh, they would sell shares of the film uh, at ten grand a share, by the way, to friends and relatives. And after about a year of fundraising, they had enough, mo uh, enough money to start working on the film. Around this time, uh, Rob uh, Tapert was evicted. Uh, he was evicted, he said, uh, oh, no. in March 1979 from his apartment for uh, all the movie shit they were doing, apparently. Now, um, no, uh, there's two different stories about eviction. I'll tell you the other one in a minute. But this one, they just got kicked out. Sam was actually staying with him a lot, too. So they were all off on their own. But uh, Rob had always been kind of in trouble as a youth. Uh, but it finally paid off because apparently, uh, due to that, his dad was good friends with, and they have a family lawyer named Phil Gillis, they said. Mm -hmm. And yep. so uh, Phil Gillis uh, just also happened to 
just so happened to love showbiz, wanted to work with them. And uh, he was in something they called the players group. They said it was all men's group where they had performed in plays. So these guys just so happened to love showbiz. And uh, so they wanted to help him out. And uh, they formed or they formulated or threw together, whatever you call it, a, a thing called the Private Placement Limited Partnership. These lawyers drew it up for them. I uh, said so normally it would cost like 2,500 bucks that they didn't have to make something like this. Mm. Uh, but they said basically in it, it just said something along the lines of you, the investor, if you invest like $10,000, you'll get say 2% of the film profits if there are any. But they said having this really helps because first of all, like once you get the first person to sign up for it, it's easier to prove that it's legit and you can get more and more people. Uh, it also said for also for such a low budget thing, they had contracts for everything, which to this day allows them to still track the flow of money from this whole movie. They said, which yeah, was, which obviously is not always the case in these low budget films, a lesson that we learned on uh, the Texas chainsaw massacre. Where... Well, uh, yeah. They said it could have easily killed them because yeah. they said, you know, like these movies, once it starts actually getting somewhere, it could get into lawsuits and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, the document was apparently pretty good. Bruce Campbell says uh, reading that document was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Anyway, Rob, Rob talked about how much he learned about show business just from starting all of this stuff. He said in that doc, you'd have to put down, like, for example, projections of what your expected return on investment is. He said, so uh, he's like, fill it out like this. Here's your expected return. I'm like, I don't fucking know. Uh, <laughs> right. so he's like, so now all of a sudden we're, we're an accounting firm working on a business we don't know anything about. Uh, <laughs> He said, but I learned that every startup in the world is, I, I now know, is built up, are built on made up numbers. So <laughs> he's, he's not like, wrong. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, contract law. <laughs> he said, I mean, so, to me, I mean, we laugh, but like pick any movie nowadays, you'll find an accounting section on the credits. You'll find mm -hmm. a legals section. Like oh, yeah. it, you got to have that stuff. Yeah. But to, to, for them to do it on. Yeah. For them to do so, it on this is on this is, it's very forward thinking of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. More so than a lot of filmmakers because these guys are like twenty two years old. Yeah, like they're they're kids. Mm -hmm. You know, like like I said, it, they they've been able to track. They created like some kind of secondary company that handles like well, they the created their own. Money. They created their own production company during this too, called Renaissance Pictures. This yeah, is where maybe the, that's what I'm thinking. During this process is when Renaissance Pictures uh, became their like their official production company. Uh, Sam was saying the worst part for him is he he hated selling. He didn't want to have to do any of that. That's what he's got and robbed it, for. Yeah, there you go. And uh, <laughs> that's what a producer does. <laughs> he said to get over like the first initial uh, initial rejection. Uh, he said, you know, he was like, so I asked my dad and my mom. Uh, some of my family and they all said no. So that was an easy <laughs> one to get out of the way right off. <laughs> and, uh, well, the, the but, lawyer ended up being the first investor, I think. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. I and, think, he, uh, had, I think he, he had so much faith in them after this process that he actually signed on and bought like a, a couple of shares himself. Yeah. And they, they had like some decent luck too. like uh, Sam tells a story about going to, uh, they were taking some of the super eight to Kmart to get worked on or something. And, uh, he had probably had like 40 roles, he said, with him. And he was there and a guy was getting some family pictures done. and was like, what are you doing with all that? And so he told him about it. And he said the guy ended up being like this Michigan entrepreneur, uh, some contractor guy named uh, 
Mr. Gertensen, uh, who their business is still a business in Detroit, like Gertensen and Sons. But he said the guy told Sam, he's like, well, why don't you consider me one of these people you got to pitch it to? Come to my house and show me the movie. And so they went to the guy's house and showed him the movie, and he invested. Bruce said he ran into a guy that worked for the lighting company. He like normally takes a yearly trip to Vegas. It was like, ah, screw it, I'll skip Vegas and I'll give you five grand. So they would have like these lucky moments. And uh, I think Bruce said uh, we we made a deal with all the investors. We we're looking for one hundred and fifty thousand, and if we got it to ninety thousand, it would trigger the release from the escrow that we had created. And if we didn't get to it, we had to give it all back. So there was like this terrifying time of like getting to that one point. He said he remembers they got to like 85,000 and they just could not get further. So they had to like send another letter out to all the investors saying like, we're this close. I swear to God, we can make this movie. If you'll just give us like five more grand. That's like those emails that I get from Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) Right. Right. We're so close. We just need $15,000 more. Yeah. If you could donate $5. (laughs) We know that you've done that once before. Uh, It's also, I I think we do have to uh, stress just how important Rob Tapert was to this whole thing. Uh, Because these guys, like I said, they were kids. They were uh, immature. You know, they're 22 years old. Tapert is that age as well. But Tapert has a real like head for business. I mean, he was, he he was not like a filmmaker or anything. He, he didn't have the background that these other guys had uh, up until the time that he met them in college. He was like an economics major, I think in college, he had nothing, nothing to do with filmmaking at all, but he just was naturally very good at it. And he's the one who kind of kept everything in line. Once they start shooting this film and things kind of go to shit, Rob tapered is the one who kind of holds everything together from a business standpoint, uh, like this movie would not have gotten made without Rob Taper. And I mean, he's become, he's his, his whole career is kind of connected to Sam Raimi. Cause they, you know, down the line, they're going to uh, co-found uh, ghost house pictures, you know, where they do uh 30 days of night and they do some uh, drag me to hell and some other stuff, uh, the, the evil dead remake, but he's been a very successful producer, but he, he did not start off as a guy who had any aspirations of getting into filmmaking. He just turned out he was good at it. You know, uh, you know he's married to Lucy Lawless. What? <laughs> yeah, Rob <laughs> Tapers. They, they 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 got married like in the late nineties, like during when like Xena was being. Married. I was gonna say, you know what's funny is is I I when I was looking at some of these names that they bring up throughout the thing, you know, because a lot of obviously a lot of the guys that work on this movie, um, they all know each other somehow, some way, and uh, you'd see a lot of their work would be on those like things Her- like Xena, and Hercules, Hercules, Xena, <laughs> uh, Briscoe County Junior, right, right, like, yeah. like all those shows. <laughs> so they they've got their money at this point. So their, their first order of business, they're like, you know, okay, we, we're going to make a movie, but we do have to get a cast. <laughs> so luckily they already had two principal cast members ready to go. That was Bruce Campbell and Ellen Sandweiss, you know, established members of the Michigan mafia. Uh, Campbell, as we all know, would play Ashley J. Williams, the film's hero while Sandweiss, she played Ash's girlfriend, I think in the, in the short, but in the feature film, she's going to play Ash's uh, sister, Cheryl. Campbell and Sandweiss, they were the only two cast members who weren't required to audition because of their previous work with Raimi. He knew he wanted them in the role regardless. Uh, and then the rest of the cast was found through fairly traditional auditioning methods. You know, they put out an ad that they were doing auditions for a movie, uh, although the auditions did take place in the basement of Sam Raimi's parents' house, so which that's a little unconventional. Yeah, a little sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> they, they said they had to, uh, they ran into a couple of problems. You mentioned uh, Cheryl 
Gutridge earlier. She was one of the yeah. girls. It was her and uh, I just forgot her name for some reason. Uh, Ellen. Ellen. Ellen yeah. They were like their go-to girls, they said. Yeah. But like Ellen, you know, was easy to talk to. They got along with her. They wanted Cheryl too, but like her mom did not trust her running off with college guys to go do anything. And, yeah. so, <laughs> and so, yeah, they said they were holding the casting and he said, they said it was funny. It would always be like these girls showing up with their big buff boyfriends. Right. Cause they were like, it, Bruce Campbell's like, it's, it's, they thought we were shooting a snuff film. <laughs> <laughs> well, through this auditioning process, they filled out the rest of their small cast. Uh, they had Betsy Baker as Linda, Ash's girlfriend. Teresa Tilly played their friend Shelly, although she's credited under a pseudonym in the film under the name of Sarah York. And Hal Delrich was cast as Scott, which is Shelly's boyfriend. Uh, a lot of the folks, you know, just working even behind the scenes were friends from elsewhere. Uh, uh, there's a guy, Steve Goodman. Uh, he was like a good friend of theirs. He did all the transportation. I think like everything Sam Raimi's done, he's been there somewhere uh, in this one he's cried as transportation but he was apparently also cooked for everybody on set yeah and uh steve frankel uh was uh sam's friend from camp uh he's credited with like construction and sam just said he loved him because he was a good guy and had a can-do attitude and a great sense of humor uh and he said he really could do anything like him and bruce campbell's brother don campbell helped Basically, they said turn a bard into a working film set, which we'll talk more about it. But they said that, uh, you know, like Steve gave him the idea for how the furniture looks and everything, just how off kilter and unbalanced everything is in the in the cabin. And they said Don had a hammer that could destroy and build anything. <laughs> and so he just walked around it at all times with that. Uh, and there was Josh Becker, who was a longtime friend of theirs. So just just cool to see all these people. They said their buddy John Camaro. Uh, who's a well-known producer now or like pretty popular. He uh, left NYU to uh, he was in film school to come help make evil dead. Wow. And he never <laughs> went back and graduated. Huh. <laughs> and so, yeah, just kind of interesting. Teresa was uh, there. They had a CPA and his daughter was an actress. He was like, Oh, my daughter does some acting. They're like, well, send her over. And they, yeah. they liked her and they were like, all right, well, She'll work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are very few people in the film aside from the main like five that are in the cabin. Although you do see a couple like you've got Rob Tapert is the local fisherman, you know, who they're waving at him. Oh, he's, yeah. He's one of them. I think Sam Raimi might be the other one. And then Sam Raimi also does the voice of the evil dead. Like the the when when the deadites are talking uh, that that like obviously it's a very. Uh, edited version but that's sam raimi's voice too oh, and we'll, we'll get into some of the other uncredited uh cast members or uh or or the oddly credited cast members here in a minute yeah but uh first todd i want to challenge you <laughs> 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 if any of these uh actors who have none of whom have really done anything else other than bruce campbell yeah <laughs> happen to maybe just show up in a random episode of star trek well, I've actually got a surprise for you guys. No, I don't. There's there's nobody. <laughs> there's, there's nobody in Sark. <laughs> uh, what did he find? No, no. Yeah. It's it's an incredibly small cast and it's an incredibly small crew. I guess not surprising. Nobody's worked on Star Trek. A lot of people have gone on to some big things, and that's great. But in terms of Star Trek, not a one. Not a one. Um, but I do want to give a shout out to. Uh, we've already covered a couple things that we've. Uh, used as source material i actually got the evil dead companion which was done in 2000 by bill warren if yeah. you're 
again, it's a great source. It actually reads as a great companion piece to if chins could kill. This is more focused on the Evil Dead films, uh, basically from Evil Dead to Army of Darkness and a little beyond that. But uh, if you dig the films of Sam Raimi, this is a must read. It's very well written. Uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Todd that if you, you better be a fan of Evil Dead because I don't know where you got that and I'm not judging you but I definitely saw that book and knew it's like a hundred dollars on Amazon <laughs> and you could buy like use for like forty or something. So. Oh yeah, I got mine. Actually, I probably got it not long after it came out. So wow. so you probably it. got it. I you could got sell it. it. Price. <laughs> yeah, I should. <laughs> <laughs> I even but, looked on eBay and I was like, oh, I'm going to get this. And I was like, I am not paying $40 for this. Book. No, <laughs> no, no. Uh, funnily enough, in that book, uh, early on, uh, Ted Raimi talks about his career a little bit and how later on he landed a role on Sequest DSV, oh. uh, where, where he played, as he insists, not the series Uhura, but it's Chekhov. So I was <laughs> so, like, hey, there's a Star Trek reference. Clo- I can- <laughs> yeah, close enough, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, and there's nobody in Star Trek. Bum, bum, <laughs> yeah. bum. Just just Ted Raimi, who was like 16 when the Evil Dead was being made. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, only appears as a fake shimp, which we'll get into. Uh, exactly. But he I'm going to tell you, I don't know if Star other Trek. people had this problem, but I, I have had trouble mixing up Ivan and Ted Raimi. I did not realize there were so many brothers <laughs> until like, yeah, I think there's four recently. of them. Ted is the one you see on screen more often. Uh, you don't see him on screen in this one. You, you're going to see him pretty uh, significantly in Evil Dead 2, although under quite a bit of prosthetic. Well, one of the first crucial decisions that Raimi and his collaborators made was to not shoot the film in Michigan, uh, which would have made sense because, you know, low budget, let's shoot around our our house. But uh, by the time they were ready to shoot, it was getting late into the fall and it was going to be incredibly cold. Michigan winters are cold. So they're like, let's not shoot here. Let's go down south and shoot where it's going to be warmer. So the Michigan mafia decided to shoot in a small Tennessee town called Morristown. Yeah, it's actually not far from here. I actually pulled it up in the map. Yeah, if you haven't gathered, like I, I read a book. I pulled things up in a map. Mark it down, folks. I did research. <laughs> Todd, Todd, I actually is, did research for this episode. People. Who is this Todd? <laughs> who is this guy? Uh, yeah, Morristown. It's in eastern uh, Tennessee, but uh, the cabin unfortunately is not there anymore. No. Um, it is not. I have a I have a vial of dirt from the uh, from where the cabin once stood. Oh really? Yeah, I do. Awesome. I do. It's some, it's on my desk here somewhere. Why? How? Wait. What's the story behind that? Why do you have a vial? Why do I have dirt? a vial of dirt? So uh, years ago, um, Fright Rags, the the t shirt website, Fright mm-hmm. Rags, they did this collaboration with the ladies of the Evil Dead, uh, the three women from the movie. They did a collaboration with them. They had uh, t shirts. Uh, made that just show the women in their like form from the movie, like as deadites, you know, mm. uh, and a poster. You could get like, a, and I, I, so I get this like deluxe edition version of it. They came with a t shirt, the poster, and it came in this like cardboard box that looked like the trap door from the Evil Dead. Nice. You open it up, and one of the extra little goodies in there is that the people from Fright Rags went to Tennessee and found the site of the original cabin and filled up these little vials of dirt from the cabin. So they threw that in as a little bonus. In, oh, in in the package yeah that's so, so cool <laughs> the t-shirt doesn't fit me anymore but i do have the poster and it is signed by all three women so i've got that yeah, uh fine. and then i've got the little vial of dirt sitting on my desk here so that's the yeah, story they, they wanted to <laughs> i read that they wanted to shoot the, the, their plan originally was uh in in michigan shoot summer of 79 
but because of all the delays, the clunkiness of financing and everything, they push it south. And Morristown had a, uh, they went there and they uh, scouted it. They they had a film commission, uh, or Tennessee had a film commission. Yeah. Um, so this guy, uh, Gary Holt. Gary Holt. Yep. He ended up helping them find a place. Uh, the original place, I guess they uh, got there and the cabin was not available at the yeah. time. Yeah. And so uh, they had to do car photography first, Sam Raimi says. And so uh, he said that was cool. They, they, he said they had so much fun. Like it was like everything was easy. And like uh, Gary Holt brought them in for Thanksgiving. He said they had like a huge Southern dinner and they rolled dried tobacco. I remember in Bruce Campbell's book, he's like, I didn't know you could do sweet potatoes so many ways. (laughs) (laughs) He said he remembers one day they were there and somebody's like, what did the cattle got out? Go round them up. How do you round up a cattle? And uh, just run (laughs) after it. Yeah. (laughs) Bruce says he remembers that they went there and they could tell, you know, it's like the South was the South. Like you, you, you know, he's like a lot of towns just look the same anymore. He was like, but you went there and he was like, I've never seen so many poor people. In my yeah. life, like he I mean, was it's like, the middle of nowhere, like, Tennessee. Yeah, he was like Appalachian. at flags, moonshine, moon pies, and Mountain Dew. I think is what he said. This <laughs> <laughs> would be on a T-shirt. <laughs> Morristown, Tennessee. Moonshine, coming, moon coming pies. Coming soon to CinemaShock.net. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm bound for all three of those things, really. <laughs> uh, but he said, Sam says he remembers like shooting the car photography first, and it was like all daylight. Everybody felt good. Yeah, don't get used to it, Sam. Yeah, he said it was a nice breezy thing. And Bruce was like, yeah, everybody was fresh, man. We were all excited. Then Rob Taffert says, I remember I was like sitting there. We were having to, uh, he's like, it was me and Josh Becker. uh, who He he was, he ended up being like, I think he's credited as sound editor. I mentioned him earlier, but uh, he said uh, they were riding to spots to control traffic. And he said that Josh Becker the whole time was like, this is taking way too long. Hmm. This is too much. It's not moving fast enough. Uh, this is supposed to be simple driving shots. We're going to be here through Christmas. And we're all just like, dude, calm down. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> and then Bruce Campbell's like, ah, but he was the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> and he almost died. <laughs> yeah. I, ironically, you know, they chose Morristown because it was. It, supposedly going to be warmer we're going to the south instead of in michigan for winter but morristown would end up having one of its coldest winters on record while michigan actually had one of its mildest winters on record so they kind of (laughs) shot themselves in the foot there so the script for the evil dead was kind of unique Uh, gary mentioned before how sam raimi wasn't much of a screenwriter at this point well according to Teresa tilly it was uh the script was only about 14 pages long and Ramey and them, they kept saying, we're probably going to just add things to it. <laughs> but uh, the way it sounds is like the basic structure was there, uh, but the set pieces were kind of intentionally left vague. So they could kind of just play around with those on set. We we gave uh, we gave Jim Cameron some shit, you know, and you, you talked pretty about Sam before this. But I did think about how I bet this crew or some of the cast just thought he was the biggest dickhead for a while. We're going to talk about all that, obviously, but uh, you know, you're talking about the 14 page long script. I know there's at a point somewhere in there, the cast is going to be like, can we at least get like a shooting schedule? Yeah. Be like, yeah, we'll have it. And he said, meanwhile, he was like, I would go up to my room every night and uh, draw storyboards for the next day. Like, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what we could get here. We'll see what we could shoot. <laughs> 
and uh he, bruce campbell tells the story about they bought a uh i forget what he calls it but he said it was the thing they thought they had seen on real life movie sets where you could like uh it's like i think they call it like a slot board or something and like you could put in like uh this day we'll shoot this yeah this your day. scenes yeah 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 and he said uh but as they went, they were just like, I don't know, just like put put some night stuff together and put some day <laughs> stuff together. So at least get that. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know where they were doing. Yeah, basically, they're learning yeah. as they go. Well, Tom Sullivan, who had created the makeup effects for Into the Woods, would end up doing the same on The Evil Dead. And he only had about two or three weeks of prep time before they were set to leave for Tennessee for the shoot. And during that time, he created castings of uh, of Ellen Sandweiss, Tilly Baker and Delrick. Uh, he was also able during that time before they left to create the iconic Book of the Dead. So did anyone actually find out if the original Necronomicon still exists? Like, does someone have it? I doubt it. Uh, I, I have to imagine it's made out of like just molded rubber and it's probably deteriorated and right. disintegrated <laughs> over time. Uh, I don't I don't think I mean, who knows? I mean, there are still pieces of like King Kong available, but it's mostly just the skeletal metal structure on the inside and all the foam rubber on the outside is deteriorated. So I have to imagine that this thing's made of cardboard and like, yeah, this this thing's made of trash. So it is probably, (laughs) it is probably uh, in the trash somewhere. Uh, It's it's, it's, uh, Sullivan's like uncredited for a lot of this stuff, which is drives me crazy. Yeah. Raimi didn't want him credited for everything that he did on the film because they thought it would scream low budget too much. So like they, they only credited him for certain things. They didn't want to credit him for every single job he did on the film. Cause they're like, that makes it look like, you know, this is just like a super low budget amateur thing. And I'm thinking, I mean, it is. That yeah. is what it, yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you're making. But I think, I guess they thought that like seeing the same name over and over and over would just make that super apparent to audiences. So Tom Sullivan didn't get a credit for a lot of the things he did on the film. Yeah. Creating the book of the dead. That's basically that's production design. That's not makeup effects. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not the same as like, I don't know. Uh, uh, what's his face from the room. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He wants his name. All- Tommy Wiseau wants his name all over that screen. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Rodriguez does it, you know, yeah written directed edited special effects music by robert rodriguez oh oh hi dead eyed (laughs) it's fucking bullshit i did not summon them i did not (laughs) oh hi ash (laughs) oh man somebody call tommy let's do this (laughs) let's make this happen (laughs) well in the original script uh, i'll put script in quotes uh the book of the dead was described as being covered in some kind of animal hide with an ancient form of writing on the cover and it was actually tom sullivan's idea to feature a human face on the cover inspired by stories that he'd read about the nazis creating lampshades and book covers out of human skin they sell those at uh, crate and barrel don't they pottery barn oh okay <laughs> so but yeah he he thought that like it would hey how do we read this as human flesh instead of just animal flesh well let's put a fucking face on it <laughs> they'll know it's a human so which now I, you I, know where hocus pocus got the idea for their book <laughs> yeah oh man well anyway the book itself <laughs> was made of corrugated ca- cardboard covered in mold rubber with store-bought parchment for the pages bound together with paper from a grocery bag. And then Sullivan also illustrated the inside of the book, even though you don't see a lot of it. He illustrated the inside of the book using elements of the script 
uh, plus some images of his own invention, including flying deadites who don't appear in the franchise until the climax of Evil Dead 2. So I wonder if they would have even shown up in Evil Dead 2 had he not drawn them into the book here. Mm. <laughs> they were like later on just like fuck we gotta use this we gotta do this <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'll put some fucking flying ones in here yeah uh, sullivan was also responsible for creating the kendarian dagger which was made out of aluminum that he bought from a local hardware store uh, paper mache dried chicken bones and parts from a skeleton model kit and then he would drill he, he drilled a hole into the skull on the knife's hilt so that he could run a blood tube through it which would make the skull puke blood whenever it stabs people. That's so freaking cool. <laughs> you imagine like all the like YouTube DIY videos, and, like tutorials that they, they could have made. I bet somebody is- has recreated that. There are a surprising number of, of yeah. things and, and it looks really good. Like they yeah. do a really good job. I'd yeah. love to have a recreation of that dagger. Oh, this, yeah. this makes me think of that. Yeah. Like how many people buy like props or not props, they even just like the recreated items that you could get like out of some kind of horror website, you know, like we were yeah. talking about. Yeah. And it's just like, uh, I wonder if like Tom Sullivan's like, man, this is like some fucking chicken bone and paper mache. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Somebody's paying 150 bucks yeah. for like the, for something that probably cost him $6 to make. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, one of the visual elements of within the woods that would also carry over and be used on evil dead was the wide angle the wide angle POV shot moving through the woods, uh, knocking over trees, chasing people? It's what they called the force shot when they were making this. Uh, they'd planned on using a steady cam for those shots, and they assured cinematographer Tim Philo that the use of a steady cam was budgeted for the film. And they kept going, oh, it'll be a couple more weeks till we have the steady cam. Oh, no, it's going to be a couple, two or three more weeks before we get the steady cam. They just kept telling, like, dragging him on, uh, leading <laughs> him on, saying they, they were going to get it, but it never happened. They never got a fucking steady cam. They were they were never going to get a steady cam. No. Uh, so <laughs> Philo had to figure out another way to pull off those shots. So Sam Raimi's not Jim Cameron, but he's just a different kind of asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he found a pretty lo-fi way to pull this off. Uh, Philo took the camera that came from the camera, by the way, came from the university that he'd been working for. Uh, he borrowed it. He, he checked it out and borrowed it from the university. Is there air quotes around borrowed? No, he, he, he did. <laughs> okay. He did. He did borrow it. He yeah, did have he, to return it later on, but he uh, did borrow it. He uh, did the uh, same for the, uh, yeah, the, the, a lot of the stuff that they, yeah. you know, that university was going to, we we're talking about where you couldn't rent the stuff. Like he, another great thing for him is he was able to get, I think several things Yeah, uh, from, the yeah from, from the university. Mm. So he takes this camera and he mounts it on a two by four, wooden two by four, which would allow the camera to swoop low to the ground. Uh, so basically you've got like a, uh, imagine a two by four, you've got a hole in the middle that you've drilled that you can like mount the camera with a screw through the wood. And then you've got two people on either side holding the two by four. So you can move it really low to the ground in a way that you couldn't do, you know, just holding it on your shoulder or any other way. Uh, and it allowed them to do these really wild shots of like the the camera moving through the woods that are incredibly unique to Sam Raimi's films, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, other directors have used that since, but I feel like this is almost like a a Sam Raimi like signature look yeah you know that 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 uh that camera that very specific camera shot and it's so lo-fi i mean it is literally a piece of wood with a camera attached to it yeah uh and they called this uh it became known as the shaky cam 
which is their tongue in cheek, you know, as opposed to the steady cam, it's a shaky cam, right? Not, not like the Paul Greengrass, like born identity, shaky cam, you know, <laughs> different, different thing. But this is, this is what they called the shaky cam. So with all of this pre-production work out of the way, it's time to head down to Tennessee uh, with the film small crew. You've got Sullivan and Philo sound recorder, Jason Mason, Josh Becker, who would end up being the film's production assistant. And he also chronicled the product, the production of the film. So a lot of the information we have about things that happened on set, the making of the film came from Josh Becker. And the plan was to shoot in Tennessee for about six weeks, but as is often the case in low budget filmmaking, there were, uh, let's say a few hiccups. <laughs> the first one was major. Uh, Gary mentioned this briefly earlier, but when they arrived there in Morristown, they met with the Tennessee film commission liaison, Gary Holt, who told them that the original cabin that they had planned on featuring was no longer available. <laughs> so they drove all the way down to Tennessee to go to this cabin, and they're like, nah, we can't use that one now. So they're, they've got to obviously find a replacement. So Holt and Tapert searched around for a replacement, while the rest of the cast and crew started shooting the film's opening scenes, including the drive to the cabin, uh, which is in Sam's cream-colored 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88, lovingly referred to as the classic uh, it's a car you'll see pop up in literally every single movie we'll be discussing on this series. You'll hear us talk about the classic in every every episode. I, I saved it. I saved it because, uh, yeah, I mean, you got to mention the classic. It's, you got to mention a the classic. Big, a bigger part of this crew is anybody. <laughs> it really is. It really is. <laughs> Sam Raimi loved that car. And like over the course of his career, it gets beat up. It gets rebuilt. It gets, I mean, in the next movie we're going to talk about, it practically gets destroyed. I mean, it, and uh, I mean, it falls out of the sky in Army of Darkness. You know, it, it gets the hell beat out of it. They just kept rebuilding it, reusing they, it. During the commentary, they actually do have a discussion where it gets brought up where Bruce Campbell is defending himself because he says there are rumors out there that I've tried to destroy the classic. <laughs> and he was like, and that's not true. He's just like, but he was like, I think it should be destroyed because Sam has put this in every single movie and Rob Tapers like, not in not in Quick of the Dead. And he's like, just he's like, it's in Quick of the Dead. <laughs> he's like, he's, I, how is it in Quick of the Dead though? I gotta I gotta he said that. he removed the chassis. From the car and makes it into a covered wagon for the quick of the day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, oh man, that's good. Yeah, so he says, uh, surely Sam can't put this in every damn movie he makes. It, it's Sam's in like, a, I will. And he's like, that's ridiculous. It I mean, it's in, it's in Doctor Strange. It's in the Spider-Man movies. It's in all of them. <sighs> and Sam's yeah. like, well, I know if I make another Spider-Man movie, what role you're going to be playing, Bruce? And he's like, oh yeah, what's that? And he's like, a piece of asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the classic isn't like a prop car. It's not set up for professional filmmaking. Uh, it doesn't have camera rigs on it. So some of the shots that would seem to be some of the most basic in the film, and on most movies would probably be some of the easiest to get, were pretty precarious to capture. So in order to get some of these shots at the beginning of the film where you, it's shooting inside of the, the car, you know, they're having the dialogue scenes inside of the car. Like I said, they don't have camera rigs on this car. So Philo actually had to hang upside down from the car roof while Sam Raimi kind of held on to him to keep him from falling off the car. And, that, and that's how they got the what would seem like the easiest shot in the film. So dumb. <laughs> <laughs> He's risking his life. For something they could, like, have, yeah. they could have just shot like a uh, old school style with two grips, like shaking the car. You yeah. Know? For all yeah. the movies we were going to ever run into in this series where there's like accidents and like unfortunate events that occur. And it's like how this one didn't get a major Somebody one. killed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. Oh, man. 
Well, elsewhere, Holt and Taper managed to find another cabin for them to use. This one was in a remote area way back in the Tennessee hills uh, where they're, you know, they're making the moonshine out in these hills. It was so remote, in fact, that the cast and crew worried a little bit about the locals. Uh, Bruce Campbell actually described, this is in his autobiography, he described the backwoods folk there who, who lived nearby as being weirder than anything else in the movie. He said that they, you know, they'd be shooting... And these locals would come around and just watch everything the filmmakers were doing. Like they, yeah, they probably, I mean, they've never seen a film set before probably I'm, I'm, and I'm reading this in his book and I'm just picturing like the, the family from wrong turn for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what I'm picturing. I just stand in there chewing tobacco and watching them shoot this movie. It's probably kind of scary, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. I mean, I remember uh, Bruce Campbell telling one story where like he was walking to the cabin one morning, he was getting there a little later and he said he was headed there. Well, long story short, they 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 had stuff stolen at the cabin. So, mm-hmm. but, but but they said the weird part was it was like they only took power tools. So yeah, they, they didn't take their people. like twenty thousand dollar camera. Right, right. <laughs> so right next to it, there's a twenty thousand dollar camera, but they took like uh, electric drill and stuff. And it was like uh, because you know they didn't have use for that other stuff. But so they started sleeping in shifts at the cabin to protect the stuff. So somebody always had to stay overnight and sleep mm-hmm. by the fireplace, basically. And uh, Bruce Campbell says one morning he was getting there. Uh, Sam had sp- stayed at the thing. And uh, he said he was walking there. And this guy, he said, with like a huge ass beard and suspenders. And he had like a, a bandolero, like the, the thing, you know, and <laughs> had like the biggest shotgun he'd ever seen. He's like walking from the cabin like down the same trail <laughs> like he's passing bruce and bruce is just like okay my first assumption was sam's dead <laughs> he's like so i said uh good morning <laughs> he said good morning <laughs> and he just kept walking so i was like so you thought i was dead you said good morning <laughs> he's like listen my calm demeanor is what saved us both that day <laughs> he's like i didn't want a bunch of rounds unloaded into me like what uh but yeah they I don't know. It's just the the locals were apparently weird. Like Sam says, one night he uh he woke up uh next to the fireplace and there was a guy just sitting next to him drinking moonshine. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and he said oh, after shit. that point he refused to sleep in the cabin anymore, yeah. so he slept out in the graveyard. Oh, that's better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, they say close to filming. Rob says he came out and and was like uh. So he couldn't find Sam and he found him out in the graveyard, like sleeping. And uh, he said, Sam, like, rolled over, was like, I'm so cold and I just want to die. <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's like, So I went and got a bunch of stuff and I covered Sam up. And anyway, I saved the Spider Man franchise that night. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the cabin itself was little more than a shell of a building, it had no windows, no doors, no indoor plumbing, no electricity, which means no heat in the dead of winter. And according to Tom Sullivan, it had a three inch carpet of cow manure on the floor. which seems like an exaggeration. I can't imagine. Listen, I've been to Eastern Tennessee, not a lot of cows in the woods. Um, <laughs> that was probably bear shit. Honestly, yeah, you might yeah. right, which answers yeah. the question. Does a bear shit in the woods? <laughs> no, they shit in the cabin, I guess. They shit yeah. in the cabin. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but they said it was like uh, the farmhouse. Like, I mean, they said that. Well, and, and it's funny. You can tell, like, if you look at it, knowing this now, 
Um, you look at the walls at certain parts, you can tell that there's just like plaster on some yeah. of the walls that that's all the wall is. It's just yeah. like, cause it's like, there'll be like wood slats. It looks like, and then it's just like white, like bare white. It doesn't mm-hmm. even match. Like it's yeah. just like yeah. somebody threw up a fake wall or whatever. But I think it, I think it's funny that now looking at Sam Raimi's filmography, every title could be a description of bear shit. <laughs> the evil dead evil dead dark man crime wave the quick and the dead yeah i don't it, understand your joke it comes out quick <laughs> and you're pretty sure something's dead <laughs> oh yeah it's, i don't want anything yeah. live coming out jesus yeah, christ yeah exactly <laughs> anyway so the, I, back, back to justice story there was a whole floor covered in an army of darkness <laughs> see Co- just cover just that works just a whole floor covered in spider-man 3 yep <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. That it might is, be the it, best it, one. It, it is a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, uh, where were we? Uh, oh yeah, the, the, the cabin. None of it's the, none of it's the gift. <laughs> the gift is what I call it when I take a shit. Uh, <laughs> or sometimes it's a simple plan. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's more the process of taking a shit, or the it, as opposed to like some, the. Sometimes it's for the love of the game. Yeah. <laughs> See what I mean? Just hope there's no blood simple. Ugh. I'll be right back. For the Stop love of the Sam game. Raimi. Sam Raimi didn't make blood simple. I know, I know. Sorry. <laughs> it's the Cohen brothers. I, I say from now on, I mean, anytime one of us has to poop, we just have to yell a Sam Raimi movie. Yep. <laughs> I'm on it. Oh, man. Well, so they, they go into this cabin. It's obviously it's a mess. So they the entire cast and crew had to work to get the cabin, not just camera ready, but livable and safe, safe-ish, at least, to work in. <laughs> and the cast and crew consisted of only about 13 people, all of whom lived together in another small and only slightly nicer cabin about two miles down the road. The majority of the shoot took place at night. Uh, with filming beginning at like two or three in the morning. And it probably didn't help that even during the day when the cast and crew would need to sleep, that it was freezing cold. And the cabin where they were shooting had no running water. Uh, Tim Filo actually said that in order to wash his hands before loading his film magazines, he'd have to pour scalding hot coffee on them. That's how they washed their hands. So that's an old Boy Scout trick, isn't it? I I was not a Boy Scout, Todd. I have no idea. Okay. So it goes without saying that this was a difficult shoot and nobody in the cast was immune from the hardships. Uh, for Sandweiss, the most difficult scene to shoot was uh, unsurprisingly, probably the infamous rape, uh, excuse me, the infamous tree rape sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, this involved her doing a lot of running through the woods uh, in, you know, like a nightgown and all of the scrapes and bruises of that entail. She's barefooted as well, running through these woods uh, while Ramey and Philo had to reset shots uh, by putting the cut down trees. Cause remember, you know how the, the force shot, the shaky cam shot would knock over trees, mm. Well, they would just cut those trees and then knock it over with the two by four. But then when they were ready for another take, they just pull the trees back up and kind of balance them like where they were before. Wow. So they, they would have to do that in between shots and then uh, so they could knock them over again. So they actually created another can, uh, fairly clever camera rig for some of the shots of of Cheryl running through the woods they laid a track of uh, plywood sheets down the dirt driveway so that they could have Philo sitting in a wheelchair I don't know where they got the wheelchair but they have Philo sitting in the wheelchair holding the camera and filming alongside Sandweiss as she ran this is like a dolly shot only they couldn't afford dollies so they just put plywood down 
And she would run and they would roll alongside her to get those shots, which is pretty ingenious. Uh, And and Bruce Campbell, actually, he he talks about another camera rig that they use that was sort of a a version of like a dolly shot called the the Vaso cam, (laughs) which they would put the camera on like a track that was made of wood, like two by fours, covered in duct tape and then Vaseline. So they would slide smoothly over it. The Vaso cam. (laughs) Not what I thought you were going to say they used it for. (laughs) (laughs) So for the vine attack itself, they actually filmed that in reverse, uh, starting with the vines wrapped around San Weiss's legs, and then they would puppet them through pre-ripped clothing that they had sealed back together with wax so they could do it over and over again. Mm, That's pretty good. Um, it's the weirdest part is that they did use maple trees, which has really flaky bark. So that was a lot to deal with for cleanup afterwards. Yeah. Uh, for her vagina. <laughs> I don't think they actually put them in her vagina. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's, the, uh, it's okay I mean, to joke about if it's not a real rape, right? <laughs> well, she, it's funny. Cause like talk, hearing her in interviews years later, like she kind of regrets that scene as does Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi thinks he took it too far with that scene. Uh, but Sandweiss was kind of embarrassed of this movie for a long time, mostly because of that scene. And like, she tells stories about how her, her like kids, uh, her son, you know, her, her son's friends had seen the movie and she never let her son watch the movie, but her, her son's friends would come over and they would like, kind of like look at her. Like they knew that was her mm. <laughs> and, and her, her kids had never seen it. So later she obviously embraced it and she's done horror conventions and all kinds of stuff. Her and the other ladies, that are in this movie uh, often tour together at horror conventions as the ladies of the evil dead. And if oh, the son came home one day, I was like, mom, am I really part tree? <laughs> and <laughs> the kids at school. <laughs> and that's where Groot came from. <laughs> there it <laughs> is. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It's not okay. Rape's not, not okay. No matter what, even if it's a tree, even if it's a tree. Yeah. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for thank you for clarifying our stance on that. I, 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 <laughs> think, we I think needed to clarify. Let's just go ahead and call for for all the trees in Tennessee to be canceled. Yeah, just cut them all go down. Ahead. Yep. So between the freezing temperatures, the less than desirable shooting location, and much of the cast being covered in sticky fake blood for most of the shoot, it was a pretty grueling and exhausting process. Uh, there are stories of Sam Raimi staying up for you know, three days straight to finish shots, uh, finally succumbing to exhaustion to the point where when he finally fell asleep, he slept so deeply that the other crew members could not wake him up. And they thought that something was wrong with it. They probably thought he was dead. Like they were shaking him like, Sam, get up. And he would not wake up because he had been up for three days straight and he had just, his body just couldn't take it anymore. I do want to say here really quick. Sorry. I, even though I'm joking about it, this scene always the 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 tree rape scene always did bother me too, and I don't yeah. know what it is that has such a visceral reaction to like rape scenes in movies. Even even though this one I feel like is a little more like, stupid, outlandish, uh, outlandish. Yeah. But yeah. even in like like I, uh, one that always pops into my head is like Rob Zombie's director's cut of Halloween. I'm like mm-hmm. they add a rape yeah. scene. I'm like Jesus, why? Like well, why the thing with you- this one is that it's it's unnecessary because there's no other indication in the entire movie that the woods are alive because of this. So this, this scene really feels like Sam Raimi read Macbeth and got the idea for this and then put it in the movie without thinking that, Hey, it's not really like we don't need this because the woods being alive is not a thing in the rest of the movie at all. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And I guess that's probably why it even 
when when it when it's in there and it doesn't have to be it just even more seems like yeah what the fuck although it man? is now one of the most like iconic scenes in the movie probably be- because it is somewhat infamous be- i mean it is it is rough to watch yeah it, it's just it's just weird it's the same way with that halloween scene i mean i remember you and i going to see that hills have eyes remake oh god like, damn that trailer scene is rough I know that was like one of the first times I ever remember being in a movie. I'm like, I kind of almost want to leave. Like, I yeah. just and from, I can't even believe I can say it's from that movie, but it's like just that scene's just like, Jesus, why? Yeah, why is this rough. happening? It really is. Uh, the, the stories from the Evil Dead shoot are legendary. And we obviously can't go over all of them here. It would take us hours and hours. Uh, this would be another Titanic episode uh but if you really want a great account of the production i would highly recommend reading campbell's autobiography if chins could kill which i mentioned earlier he he gives some great stories in there that we we won't have time to get into all of them here today uh but of course as as bad as the other cast members had it bruce probably had it the worst as he does in most sam raimi movies even in like you know the Doctor Strange movie at Pizza Papa. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he got beat up pretty good. Uh, but as he put it, he, on the Evil Dead, got the living shit beat out of him every night. <laughs> yeah, this becomes sort of a Sam Raimi uh, standard. It's a, trade, it's a trademark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just beating up beating up Bruce Campbell on his movies. Well, yeah, or just your lead actor. Because, uh, I mean... Yeah, it, like, drag me to hell. Yeah, drag me to hell. That shit goes through it, man. Uh, but... Yeah, it, it just I, they there there were like you said like so many stories you can't get into all of them, but I mean uh, there was stuff like they're talking you were talking about how cold it was. You know they had winter coats at first, but they were so cold in the cabin they apparently put these like huge heaters inside that you were not supposed to use inside, and uh, but then their coats caught on fire, and so they lost like the yikes. winter coats. <laughs> so uh, uh, yikes! I mean the cabin yeah. itself would actually burn down not long after the movie was made. Yeah. Uh, because some kids were like partying in it and caught it on fire and it burned down. And I think the only thing that was left was the fireplace. Yeah, they were going, they were going crazy out there. And uh, the the uh, I remember they said that one of the things they requested from uh, Gary was uh, the uh, they wanted moonshine. They had to have some moonshine, so they of got course. that. But then they said that that tasted horrible. But as it, as you it know, usually does, it yeah. got them through. They said they got addicted uh, to Marlboros and uh, Mellow Yellow as well. So they said <laughs> so they drank that. It, Bruce I mean, tells yeah, us, like uh, Ramey was a big smoker during this time. Yeah, they smoker. said that's all you did. You sat out there and you did the stuff and you smoked Marlboros. And uh, Bruce Campbell tells a story about like they were drinking so much Mellow Yellow. He's like, I'd never even had it. And like we were just drinking it so much there. He's like, I remember. He's like, I can't remember who, but somebody on the crew came in one day. I was like, guys, I just had water. Have you had that? And they were like, <laughs> they were like I know there's not any things. here, but there is water and it is delicious. <laughs> you should do that. And uh, they were talking about how there's no bathroom, you know, because she said no running water. Like the, mm-hmm. the poor girls in that movie, like having uh, to just go wherever you can. Yes, in the woods. Yeah. Uh, the actors told a story about uh, coming back from. Uh, new year's eve uh they had gone home for a little bit they come back and uh, they said they found uh bruce sam david goodman josh becker and rob taper uh in a craze uh running around in around the cabin having a firecracker war like they were throwing <laughs> they would run and throw a firecracker at someone's head and run away <laughs> and uh, Jeez. The, uh that was just the game they were had started to play. <laughs> they would just dangerous. run around screaming and throwing firecrackers. Bruce Campbell says they came back to Apocalypse Now. 
I <laughs> <laughs> uh, said the actresses hit like a latex point is what they called it. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. Ellen Sandweiss, uh, like just freaked out one night and started ripping it all off her face. Yeah. They just had to have it. Dot, uh, Dod, uh, Dod Campbell fell off a cliff. They said at one point, "Holy <laughs> shit!" <laughs> right, <laughs> fell off a cliff, and he just got back up and kept going and working on stuff. And like Bruce Campbell says, he would stand outside of the bathroom at night, like his Dodd would just be in the bathroom soaking in the tub, and he'd be like, "Dodd, are you okay?" <laughs> he's like, "I'm fine. Go away, Bruce." <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's like, "Dude, you you might have broken your back." <laughs> yeah, you fell <laughs> off a cliff. Epsom salt's not going to do a lot of good on you. <laughs> Uh, Bruce tells a story about his, uh, there was the one part with a tree or something wrapping around his leg. And then he said his leg got shredded and they had an appliance that, uh, Sullivan had made that, uh, was supposed to spit something out, but something happened and it burned a hole in his leg. Yikes. He said, uh, Sam Raimi called it Bruce's black hole. Like it was just this (laughs) giant hole that was in Bruce's leg that would seep stuff out every once in a while. And Bruce is like, it did that for like, I don't know, six months. (laughs) It was like, you should go to a doctor, sir. He says he still has like a huge scar there, like an indention there. (laughs) uh, I know at one point Bruce Campbell like sprained his ankle and then for like a week, Sam Raimi and Rob Taper would just poke his ankle with a stick. (laughs) Just to be a a dick. They said Josh Becker jumped off the rafters for some reason at one point and landed on a nail and they lost him for like a week. Like they said, he would just lay at the house they were staying at. They're like, are you coming in today? He's like, I don't think so. (laughs) I have tetanus. (laughs) (laughs) They said Sam got knocked out by a log on the bridge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The, uh, um and uh, well i know that like speaking of logs i know that the uh the scene where they're having to beat i think it's cheryl Mm -hmm. or or it might be it might be the girlfriend where they're having to beat her in the head with like like a piece of wood yeah those were like these styrofoam things that were popular in the 70s that you'd put in like your um your living room they look like real wood but they're made of like styrofoam they're like we're gonna go just buy some of these in town and we'll hit you with them it'll be you know styrofoam it won't hurt they're apparently pretty dense and they would just like smack her and sam was the one off screen like hitting her with them and uh to the point where she got pretty pissed off about it because they were actually hitting her in the face and it hurt a lot mm. they weren't they weren't like soft foam Oh my God. Yeah. It sounds terrible. Uh, Rob Tabor tells a story about how he was having to climb up on the rafter to uh, do something and he fell, but his leg got caught on a huge nail sticking out of the wood. They should oh, have really I- done a nail check before they got in. <laughs> yeah. he, he said he was impaled, like he was hanging upside down. And so, oh the, God. The, God uh, <laughs> they had to like pull him up and get him off the nail. I like Jesus. Yeah. They, <laughs> just like Jesus. And, uh, yeah, and then uh, I don't know, just fucked up. Just sounds like a lot of fucked up stories. That's just some of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that nobody died. <laughs> That's what I'm yeah. saying. Out of all the movies, <laughs> nobody actually nobody died. died that we know nobody of. Nobody died. Yeah. Well, by the end of 1979, the shoot was going over schedule, and Raimi was starting to run out of money. And then financial and personal obligations forced a lot of the cast and crew to leave Tennessee and head back home to Michigan. They're like, hey, we got to get back to our real lives here. We've been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but uh, we have we have a family, we have jobs, we have to go back, we have to go back to school. So with so many of the films already small cast and crew heading back to their real lives, the act of fake shimping came into play. So as we work through this series, 
you're going to hear a lot of terminology that's very specific to Sam Raimi and his regular group of collaborators. We're going to call it the Sam Raimi lexicon. All right. Mm-hmm. So these terms include like the classic. We've already mentioned that one a couple of times. That's Sam's beloved Oldsmobile that you're going to see in all these movies. Uh, but anytime we say the classic, just know that we're, we're, we are referring to that car. Uh, the Blanco cam is another one they, they came up with on this film. That was just a camera move where they used to fill, get uh, they, they used it to get some shots that were really low to the ground, like in the cabin that you wouldn't be able to get with just a cameraman holding the camera like normal so they would have a cameraman lay on his stomach while holding the camera and then he was carried by other crew members holding the blanket like pallbearer style Mm. on the sides there's the uh the elevator which was named after the first person to be hooked up to it ellen sandweiss the elevator was a seesaw-like device used to levitate the performers playing deadites, uh, usually positioned through a window behind the performer so that Raimi could capture a full body, body levitation shot. Mm. This is an old magician's trick, uh, Sam Raimi using his background as an amateur ma- magician to get some some fun uh, movie stuff. I mentioned the Vasocam earlier as well. That's another Sam Raimi lexicon uh, item there. But these old like magician's tricks are something that Sam Raimi uses a lot. Some old sleight of hand and some simple using like a simple apparatus to make movie magic out of simple and cheap magic tricks that he learned as a kid. Uh, what he wants to do and what we're going to learn a lot about Sam Raimi through this series is that he just wants to amaze his audience. However, he has to do it. And here's how he explained it in a quote that I found. He says, the point isn't just to make the film. It's to amaze yourself and everyone at the same time. If you think what you're doing is neat, chances are everyone else will too. I love that he uses the word neat there. Sam Raimi is like, he grew up on these old movies that were made like before he was born. So he kind of talks like people from those movies. Yeah. He said He's the kind of guy who says like, oh, it's swell. You know, like, things like that. <laughs> That's like how Sam Raimi talks. I, I kind of love that about him. He's got uh, that but, voice too that just sounds like, uh, I can't even help it. Like sometimes when I'm like reading a quote by my, like just hear it in hearing the, it like, in his voice. Oh my mm-hmm. God, that's really swell. That's, yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll come across a lot of other Raimi-isms throughout this series, but the most widely known one and one that you'll see actually in the credit of a lot of Sam, Sam Raimi's films is known as fake shimping. So what is fake shimping? Well, I'm going to give you guys a little history lesson. Very brief here. Okay. So shimp, uh, for those who are the young people under the age of, I don't know, 60 in our listening audience, <laughs> uh, shimp was the name of the original third stooge. You know, Sam Raimi's a big fan of the three stooges. So it was shimp, Mo, and Larry. And shimp made just one feature as a stooge before leaving to pursue a solo career. He'd made some shorts and then one feature. And then he was replaced by the more well-known Curly in 1932. So Curly is the third shimp that everyone, or the third stooge that everyone really knows well, uh, because he was in so like, hundreds of shorts with with the three stooges. But Literally Cur- before right now, I thought uh, Curly was the first and shimp was the replacement for Curly. No, it went it went shimp first and then Curly, and then we're going to get into it. But shimp comes back. Uh, so Curly suffered a, a debilitating stroke in 1946, which is when shimp was brought back into the lineup. And then in 1956, uh, the Stooges were contracted for eight comedies, but only four of those got made before Shemp died of a heart attack at the age of 60. Mm. So they're still under contract for four more of these, right? So to fulfill that contract, four more shorts were created reusing old footage of Shemp 
and filming new connecting scenes with a guy named Joe Palma, who was a longtime Stooge supporting actor. And in these uh, new shorts, he's mostly seen from the back. So Palma became known to Stooge fans as a fake shimp or the fake shimp. And Raimi, of course, being a huge Stooge fan himself, adopted that phrase to refer to anyone playing body doubles or stand-ins. So anytime that he puts somebody in who's not the actual actor who normally plays that role, they're a fake shimp. And if you look at the credits for The Evil Dead, you'll see no less than 18 people credited as fake shimps, including Raimi's brothers, Ted and Ivan, Scott Spiegel, and Cheryl Gutridge, who starred in Clockwork. Remember, she wasn't allowed to go to Tennessee, uh, but not all of these folks were used in Tennessee. So at this point, they've moved back to Michigan, and the majority of what was still needed to be shot once they got back to Michigan were insert shots and close-ups, and they filmed a lot of these in Sam's Garage or out in rural parts of Michigan, out in the woods, where they could have shot the whole movie to begin with, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And the effect shots of Shelley's dismemberment, for example, uh, were shot in the garage at Sam Raimi's parents' house. One thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, you know I talked about the cast coming back because they, they had left, like you said, and then they, they got them to agree to come back for like five days starting on New Year's Eve. And so they stay for five days and the crew, these guys were in Michigan or not Michigan in Tennessee for like 10 more days. The last 10 days they lived in the cabin. They got kicked out of the house. Uh, uh, Rob said he ignored it because it wasn't the first time he'd ever been evicted from a place. And he was like, well, we're paying rent here. So I don't know how, <laughs> like, you know, like how we're getting evicted. And he said, no, we got prostitutes coming in. The landlord said that. And he was just like, what? They're turning it said, into a brothel. And so he said, legitimately one day the landlord shows up and they have a moving truck and they're bringing in like these brass bed <laughs> beds. Like, the building. And they're like out of here. Can you imagine what <laughs> a prostitute at a backwoods Tennessee brothel is going to look like? Right. <laughs> whatever like, you want honey for a case of mellow yellow not a, <laughs> not a lot of teeth though which honestly has its benefits there you go <laughs> there you go even justin gets in on the fun sometimes folks it's uh <laughs> the dirty the dirty nasty jokes from justin bishop are the best uh, <laughs> but uh anyway they said in the last two days of course no sleep whatsoever bruce campbell says when he got back to michigan uh he slept on the floor of his room for two months uh, like he just did. He was just used he, to he it. He said he was feral. <laughs> <laughs> he said his mom would like check on him and be like, why are you sleeping on the floor? And he's just like, it's how we do it in the cabin. This, is, like this somebody, is all I know now. It's like when somebody comes back from Vietnam. <laughs> right. uh, but yeah, uh, they, they give a lot of credit here to like a lot of that big part at the end was uh, they still needed to get uh, the, the meltdown sequence. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, and so... Um, anyway, it was just, uh, that, that's all. I just wanted to mention like some of that other stuff, just, just how crazy everybody was coming back and they still had more to do. Like they, <laughs> they're in the commentary talking and, uh, at one point, like, uh, Rob and, uh, Sam are talking about driving back to Michigan and they both had not slept They're They're saying like, Rob would be like, I gotta, I'm going to die. I have to sleep now. And he'd be like, Sam would be like, I gotta keep going. <laughs> Sam's like, I don't know why. I just felt like I had to keep going. <laughs> so like I would just keep driving. But then like a few minutes later, like they'll be talking about something. And Rob's like, Yeah, then this thing. Wait, what was I? Hold on. What was I talking about? And, and Sam will be like, Rob, wake up. You're still in the truck. We're still driving back for a minute. <laughs> <Michigan>. Get up. <laughs> 
He's like, Jesus, what a flashback. Like they still seem bothered by that. <laughs> it is. They're, they're yeah. like Vietnam vets. Yeah. They have like this real <laughs> shared experience. Yeah. Well, in the spring of 1980, Sam Raimi t- trucked off to New York City with the film canisters containing the evil dead tucked under his arm. Uh, his trip to New York was to assemble an edit of the film with an editor by the name of Edna Ruth Paul and her young editing assistants, a guy named Joel Cohen. Apparently in Detroit, it was huge for editors to come in and do commercials. Uh, so that was one thing they were counting on. Yeah. And so they had an editor in mind who wasn't going to work out, but he suggested Edna Ruth Paul right. and they went and talked to her and, uh, I guess she had just done a movie. So they were like, she actually just worked on a feature of fear, no evil. And uh, so they're like, all right, so she seems to fit the bill. And so, yeah, they got her signed up to do it anyway. uh, Like you're going to talk about, they have to split up here, but you know, Bruce is working to like sell more so that they could pay Mm -hmm. the editor and uh, Sam's off to NYC. Yeah. So Joel Cohen, uh, who I mentioned is Edna's, uh, editing assistant that, that name probably sounds familiar to pretty much everyone listening to this show uh, so fresh out of film school cohen had headed to new york to gain some practical experience in filmmaking as a production assistant and an assistant editor uh, three years after the release of the evil dead cohen would make his own directorial debut along with his brother ethan on the texas set neo-noir blood simple fair shit uh, what <laughs> So Paul, <laughs> Paul and Cohen assembled a cut of Evil Dead that Ramey and the Michigan Mafia were pretty happy with, uh, but there was one major sequence missing, which is the big special effects climax. So as Ramey worked with his editors in New York, his effects team, Tom Sullivan and those guys uh, back in Detroit, got to work on this ambitious scene. Ramey wanted the sequence to be bigger and grosser than anything else we had seen in the film so far. And Sullivan actually pitched the idea of using stop motion to achieve the look of the deadites melting. Now, this uh, obviously we know that stop motion is a very labor intensive process. And for this scene in particular, it took over three and a half months in the basement of a guy named Bart Pierce, who's another one of the film's special effects technicians. I don't know that he has a credit on the film, uh, but Tom Sullivan talks about him a lot as being pretty important to this, uh, this particular sequence in the film. So they basically do this like old school stop motion style They're They are using some other like techniques in there. There are some, uh, some over some you know, where they're overlaying scenes over it. They're using, I think they use like oatmeal or something for some of the goop coming out. Uh, it's yeah. pretty, pretty interesting uh, if you see it broken down. But once this uh, footage got back to Ramey and his editors, a final cut was assembled and Evil Dead was in the can. Uh, with one major exception, they still needed a musical score. They still needed a score for the film. So for yeah. this job, uh, Ramey hired a young composer named Joe Loduca, who was fresh out of college where he had majored in composition and performance. The um, the stuff with with the meltdown sequence, uh, that Bart Pierce guy, uh, Tom Sullivan and Tim Filo, like, you know, they they build up uh, Ramey and those guys build up those two a lot. Obviously, I mentioned Tom Sullivan before we talked about Tim Filo and what he was able to accomplish. And then this Bart Pierce guy. But uh, they said they had gone to this company called like Magic Lantern. And and uh, I guess uh, Rob used to work there or something. And uh, so they tried to pitch the idea to them to like see what they could do to help with the effects. And they said, yeah, sure, we can do it. It'll be like $500,000. And they're like, 
well the fucking movie doesn't cost that much <laughs> right so, yeah, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> so they said this bart pierce guy wanted in on it and uh they worked with him and uh his wife allowed them to do it in their basement and he said they said that probably ruined their marriage because it stunk so bad had you know they were regularly bringing in like hissing cockroaches garden yeah. snakes and all this stuff <laughs> cream corn <laughs> right <laughs> And, uh, but they were saying how insane that animation was, you know, like it, they said that it's still impressive even now. I think I, I love mm. that sequence in this film. Well, yeah. they, they were talking about, you know, like it would be one thing that if you were just doing stop motion, but like Pearson Sullivan had all these ideas about how to use, uh, you know, like claymation and mm. then also like uh, creating these matted off portions, of, like having some kind of liquid event happening at the same time that could kind of distract your Almost you like your slide of hand thing. Like what's yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because liquid doesn't work in a stop motion, obviously. Right. Uh so that yeah, so they they used like matte matte techniques for that, which is I think was Bart Pierce's idea. Yeah. Uh it, it's a super interesting approach, and it does make the I, I think it makes the sequence hold up better than it might otherwise. Yeah, because you can't take it all in at the same, like mm-hmm. just the same way. There's and a so, lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so it kind of makes it I don't know. It feels more realistic that way. And, yeah, as realistic uh, as, you know, a demon-possessed uh, creature well, melting could be. You know what? <laughs> you should meet my wife. Um, the, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even what? know what that means. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I hope she's listening. She's not. <laughs> I'm talking about you, honey. She does not listen to this show. She 100% <laughs> does not listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not even worried about it. One other thing I wanted to mention is uh, the editor, Edna. Like she she had recommended them Joe Macefield uh, as the sound editor mm-hmm. that they should really talk to him because these guys thought they had a lot of experience with sound editing and so they weren't that worried about it. But I just thought it was worth mentioning. They said this guy came in and worked basically for nothing just to help them nail it down and. Uh, they were they this is the one area i think they they seemed like they were cocky in because they said he was like regularly having to be like boys please let me do the editing let, let me show <laughs> you how to do this and like he would uh sit on and show them but uh that they said that a lot of this worked out really great and i'm not going to go into all the details but when i talk about like how hard you had to work on a film back then you know, or like the times where I've been watching something that felt like an asshole that I haven't made a movie yet. It's because <laughs> you like hear them talk about even the sound editing, like syncing up sound and nailing all these parts right. They're yeah. talking about this guy nailing down like just reels and with a razor, like going through and wow. just like, you know, matching things up and learning about the numbers and how to line stuff up and sync it properly and all this. And uh, Rob Tabert's talking about like, I don't know how the fuck people did this without digital and, you know, but then you got a guy like Sam, Sam is just like, that was amazing to me. Like, cause at least, you know, where you go wrong when something falls apart here, you know, mm, yeah. and it's just like, and they're just talking about how many movies they, people did this way. They were like, this is, it, I don't know. It just sounded insane. Just like listening to them talk about it, just shaving it's, pieces off with a razor. Yeah. It's a know, crazy but, process. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the people, filmmakers now probably, take for granted not that not that filmmaking even now is easy at all but man before digital like everything was assembled by hand like from the sound to the the picture everything it's and and to imagine though these guys like being out in this cabin for this long they're doing all this and now they've got to go through this not to mention Mm -hmm. all the shit we talked about before to get here they're like busting their ass this is the 
the ultimate amount of hustle you can have to make yeah. something happen. And they're not mm. making any money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're not getting paid. They're not getting paid. So they've completed the film at this point, right? Uh, so the now completed film, still called the Book of the Dead at this point, by the way, uh, not the Evil Dead yet, had its world premiere in uh, where else? Detroit, Michigan, at the Redford Theater, which is the theater that like Bruce Campbell grew up going to movies at. So Ra- Sam Raimi did this William Castle thing at his uh, at, at the premiere where he hired ambulances to sit outside the theater, kind of to give the uh, impression that, you know, if someone had a heart attack because the movie was so scary that there's ambulances waiting by. It's an old, an old William Castle uh, nice. stick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but it worked and, and attendance for the premiere far exceeded the cast expectations with uh, about a thousand people showing up for it. And a lot of these, now a lot of the people in like in the balcony and stuff were like teenagers, high school kids, uh, and they fucking loved the movie. They it, it went over like gangbusters at this premiere. Nice. Bruce was talking about they didn't have, uh, you know, we were like, we, we didn't have a huge machine. There were no screeners. This was just a theater. This is the first time anybody's seen it. It's like now you like show it to like a hundred different theaters and people fill out a fucking comment card or whatever and hand it in. And, you know, he's like, this is the first time. This is what we're going to see, like what people think of this thing. And he was like, there's so many reactions, which was awesome. But he was like, it was also crazy. He's like, there was just so much laughter, like in the movie. (laughs) And uh, he said, an old lady tracked us down. uh, And uh, she, she like asked people where we were and like found us at the end of the thing. And he said, we were ready for her to like ream us. And like, she just came up. She's like, fellas, I want to let you know, I was having a horrible day and I just had a ball. Thank you for making this film. <laughs> and he was like, some old awesome. lady is thanking us for Evil Dead. <laughs> and, uh, and Sam Raimi's like, that was actually more devastating for me because there was something clearly wrong with that woman. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Sam says he remembers a professor from MSU that was uh, from the main significant class, uh, like for film production that he went to, that he remembered the most from. And he went to the, at the screening and uh, he said, the guy comes up to him at the end of it. It was like, what the hell is this? Did you learn anything in that class? <laughs> and he said, I thought I was losing my mind in the middle of this movie. You can't just have crazy shot after crazy shot after crazy shot. <laughs> and Sam says he was devastated by this. Mm, like he said huh. so much of what his quote was, he's like so much of what a filmmaker has to deal with is, the disappointment of others when they see their work that they've created. And he's like the hardest thing for a filmmaker like me to deal with uh, is because I'm just out to make pure entertainment and Mm. I just want to please the audience. So when I fell, I don't have an artistic leg to stand on. I've really failed. And he's like, it's hard to know. Uh, Yeah. He was saying, it's just like, it's hard to know what the audience is going to like. If you don't preview the thing in a rough form first, get some reactions and try to build on that. So you have to, but he's like, here, we're just having to wait for the premiere to actually get a judgment on the way somebody's going to think of your film. But that that, that makes, that makes Spider-Man three that much sadder. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. As he said, he's like, he's there for entertainment. So if that part fails, then what's he got, you know, cause he's not trying to be, you know, he's not David Lynch or something. He, yeah. He's know? not well, like David Cronenberg, even though we've talked about, you know, saw himself as an artist. Uh, yeah. Sam Raimi is, is not, doesn't view himself that way. He wants to make audiences entertained. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, another little story though I do love here is that the final print of the film they needed for that showing was still in New York City and uh they couldn't get it to Detroit in time. Uh uh they didn't know what to do, but finally Joel Cohen uh said, you know what? My little brother is he's just like an accountant for Macy's or something. Nobody's gonna miss him for a few days. Yeah. So I'm gonna fly him down here with the <laughs> with the print. And so <laughs> they flew Ethan Cohen down to Detroit to bring to deliver the print. Right. I did not know that. That's fun. <laughs> what a fun story. <laughs> it's so fun how the Cohen brothers and Sam Raimi's stories intertwine, which we'll talk about a lot on our next episode. But uh so at this point, you know, the, the movie has premiered in Detroit in front of Sam Raimi's hometown. Does great. Uh, but now it's time to get this movie in front of audiences outside of the director's hometown. Uh, so first line of business, as far as that goes, is we need a distributor and we also need a catchier title. Uh, Tom Sullivan, there were a lot of uh, new titles suggested, but Tom Sullivan's was uh, lick the blood off my shovel, uh, which isn't catchier than the book of the dead, but is fucking awesome. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's, it's pretty like for an exploitation mm -hmm. uh, film would be amazing. Right along like. I spit, on, I spit on your I grave. I spit on your I was grave. Say, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Spit I spit on. on yes. Yeah, right. Right along the side. I spit on your grave and stuff like that. I, I. You know that that fits right in there with it. They had so many of these experiences, by the way. Uh, just just as we're talking about it, like uh, Sam, Sam remembers when he and Rob and Bruce would travel to talk to all these sub distributors and ask what they wanted to see in a picture, uh, because. Initially, they were thinking very locally and, and about the specific territories like we were talking about at the beginning. Um, but when he said you, you started talking about national, international, they got like so many different uh, things like, uh, you know, like, like just from the initial offset of the thing, where people were telling him, like, don't put the devil in it. You know, like that's not that's not going to go over. Well. Religious organizations won't support go it. over the Bible Belt. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, he said they even but but. At the time you're talking about too, they said they uh, talked to one producer, uh, Warren uh, Zet is Zini Zivon. Warren Zivon is Warren Zivon. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so make it about werewolves. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's Z I D E. I don't know how to pronounce it. He's the producer. He'd go on to do like the big hit and American Pie and Final Destination. Oh, good. You know, great movies. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> His father was the head of Dimension. He is said, this the same Dimension that was eventually like bought by I think it the is. Weinsteins? I mean, they, they talk about it like it okay. is because they just say it casually, like oh, Dimension Films. And okay, but uh, anyway, they said they wanted to change the movie to from Book of the Dead to House of the Dead. Mm, because, seen that movie, yeah, mm. because well, they had done the research and they had found that no movie with dead or house in the title had not made money, mm. so they wanted to go ahead and use both. And so, what a dumb, <laughs> like, what a, what a stupid reasoning. They met with like one distributor that came from like uh, uh I forgot. That's an accountant. <laughs> an accountant made that. Made I that guarantee call. you, I could find. I mean, House of the Dead, which is years later, but Uwe Boll, I don't think made fucking anything. <laughs> but this is early. This is early. Uh, Rough Pictures out of Cincinnati, they said, uh, was a sub-distributor. Uh, they went to a meeting there, uh, and the meeting got ruined because a tornado came through. Yep, and that's they happen. had to hide in the basement of the restaurant. And, uh, <laughs> uh, 
but cable remembers they all got serious and they were like buying suits and briefcases trying to like look uh, professional look professional and uh but they would go into these places he said it was like so fucking weird sometimes he's like you're he was like we were right on the tail end of this weird period in movie making because like it's like one distributor uh had like a lady with a headset sitting at a desk with that old like operator thing punching yeah. putting in the, who are you here for <laughs> <laughs> they're living like, um, in a coen brothers movie <laughs> yeah. like. they said uh before uh rob tabert says uh tabert says before we even got to raise uh much of the money he say like, i remember three of us went to new york to meet with a group called levitt pickman they were distributors at the time associated with orion and they had done just done a movie called the groove tube and uh and we uh we got a a letter from them for an intent to distribute and uh we thought this is this is good this is going to be a good thing they said but they hadn't actually seen anything yet um and we got them the script and all the stuff and he said i remember sitting at my house and they called on the phone the guy from levitt pickman and he said look i'm sorry but you cannot have five minutes of setup and 60 minutes of exorcist <laughs> he's like why not movies do not work like that and he said that was like such a disheartening call he said of course history has proven that it's actually not five minutes of setup it's 20 minutes of setup and 65 minutes of nonstop horror yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but but sam talks about just how big of a deal all of these things were because of just how dependent they were on professionals opinions of what mm -hmm. they were doing and just how devastated each time they got knocked down, you know, it was uh, uh, Rob Tabert talks about as a young filmmaker, you get tied up in the project and every, it has everything to do with who you are as a person. You can't disassociate from it. Um, we were just looking for positive feedback. And he's like, and these people would just like keep shutting us down and just not, not helping. And he was just like, it just made us, I don't know. They were just getting so depressed and I felt bad for him because this, this, the screeners is success but the people who matter seem to be like shutting them down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a frustrating process until you find somebody like who gets it, Yeah, uh, which is what, which is what ended up happening with them. So one of the people they met with was a guy named Irvin uh, Shapiro. Irvin Shapiro is a legendary film distributor. He had helped get films like uh, Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion and Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin out into the world. If you know anything about Battleship Potemkin, then you know how far back Irvin Shapiro's uh, history in the film business goes. Uh, but as far as horror goes, Shapiro had teamed up with George Romero to help him get distribu distribution deals for his follow-ups to Night of the Living Dead. He helped distribute There's Always Vanilla, Season of the Witch, and Night Riders. Mm. And it for, you know, which obviously that connects back to our Romero series for an even further connection into that series. Shapiro's administrative assistant at this time when Raimi's meeting with him was Richard Rubenstein, who had been Romero's producing partner at Laurel Entertainment. We So we talked about him a lot during that series. I mean, Richard Rubenstein is an integral character in, in the George Romero story and is sort of a supporting character here in the Sam Raimi or at least the Evil Dead story, which is, uh, I always love when our, uh, when our, the series we've done all kind of connect together in some way. It's always kind of fun. It was neat for me because like, uh, you know, I always see, you always wonder like uh, how much these people play off of each other, like, especially like with something like evil dead and the night mm -hmm. of the living dead and like how much they were yeah. thinking of each other. But a hundred percent Irvin Shapiro was a guy they decided to seek out because they said at that Romero connection, they were yeah. like, maybe mm -hmm. this guy will get it. 
uh, they had seen his name pop up. They talked about there, there would be these variety magazine specials every like around January that had all the grosses for the year. Uh, they would show you all the top of all time and distributors would start to take out ads for what they're selling. Urban had done uh, a lot of Romero stuff, like yeah. advertising stuff. And uh, they just were like, maybe, maybe this guy will get it. Uh, they said they had right before that met with a guy uh, in Detroit who did porn. They uh, said the guy had offered, he's like, I'll give, I'll give you $50,000 for it right now. This is the best offer they had had. And hmm. he's like, but take it right now. Don't think about it. You'll be happy with it. Don't think about it. Take 50 or next week I'm going to offer you 30. And uh, <laughs> they said like Bruce Campbell tried to fight him. Right. There. <laughs> was like, he was like, I was just frustrated, man. He was like, we were tired and we were frustrated. Yeah. He's like, and then we, and then they described, they got into a discussion with new line and in new line, they talked to, they said for a year and wow. they realized they were Jeez. really out of their depth with like dealing with these people and and so I'm only lingering on this because if you hear these guys talk about Irvin Shapiro, it is like like he is a god. He's like the he savior. Is, He's their yeah, savior. Like yeah. he is the only mm-hmm. one that ever mattered. That this was some guy who's old Hollywood, but he gets it and he mm-hmm. he believed in what they were doing. And um he talked to them about like, look, let me take this thing. And he's like, stop worrying about it over here. Like, let's let's look overseas. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a meme I saw the other day with like uh, the guy was like, say it, it was just like actually a clip from Facebook where somebody had tried to reply very like, uh, I think it was on a Reddit thread I follow called uh, a subreddit called uh, I am very smart. And the person had <laughs> replied with like, actually, this is incorrect information because uh, for you to operate a vehicle in this place, you need this licensing and need, or it was flying a plane. It was like, and you need this licensing and doing this thing and blah, 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 blah. And somebody had replied to that comment. It was like, I want you to do me a favor. Can you go to the beach this summer? And I want you to look out at the ocean. On the other side of that ocean is a little place I like to call the rest of the fucking world. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't matter what you did in the U.S. in that place a lot of times. (laughs) It was like, and the laws aren't the same. And everything's not the same. <laughs> and it seems that like Urban Shapiro like came to them and did the same thing. It was like, look, it doesn't matter here. Like, let's take this thing overseas. Like, let me pitch this thing. He 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 told them about how they said that he was like, look, the US has got like 60 or 70 territories. Uh, or he's like, no, no, he was like, the US is one territory. There's like 60 or 70. You know, like this is just one place. This doesn't yeah. matter. And uh, he said it was like this. Sam Raimi says it was like this huge awakening for them because uh, he was just like, think bigger than all of this. Think yeah. worldwide. Yeah. And that was it. He he like helped them push this thing out over the world. Uh, they said that he he got the, the, the variety spot. He started pitching it and like uh, the UK got really interested in it. Uh, he suggested, I think, the uh, Evil Dead instead of. Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead. Yeah, that was Irvin yeah. Shapiro's idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. when when they when they first screened it for him, they screened it in December of 1981. You know, this movie, you you often see Evil Dead credited as a 1981 film because that's when its premiere was. Uh, though, as we'll get into, it doesn't get into most audiences for a couple more years. But they screened it for Shapiro in December of 1981. And after watching it, Shapiro joked that it w- wasn't gone with the wind. 
<laughs> but he did see the commercial potential for the film and he's like okay i'll help you guys get this out into the world so he paid for publicity stills for the film he sent Raimi uh, to France, where the film, uh, at this point, is titled The Evil Dead, per his suggestion, would screen at the, the Cannes Film Market. Now, that's not the Cannes Film Festival, uh, which is a very uh, d- important distinction. Now, Shapiro, we should say, was one of the founders of the Cannes Film Festival. Like, yeah, I was how- gonna. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, uh, one of the things about him is that he was. I mean, he was doing stuff back in the. Oh, fucking 20s or something you know Dude, he, he i mean that's battleship potemkin came out in 25 he helped get the cabinet of dr caligari in front of people Jeez. uh you know which <laughs> i mean granted i mean he was like 15 years old when that movie came out so it was years later but he helped get it in front of american audiences but one of his big things was he was like a grandfather of the foreign film business like he yeah. he, had, he, had, he would he would go and buy films in like poland the czech republic or whatever and bring them back to america and play them he would like target like ethnic communities mm-hmm. uh and and, and really get them over here with those ethnic communities and hopefully like help them catch on. And, um, but yeah, he found other people that were doing the same thing and it ended up being the godfather of the Cannes film festival. Yeah. And, uh, but now, yeah, but, I, but the Cannes film market where they're showing this film is kind of, it takes place during the Cannes film festival, but it's off to the side. It's just for people to show and distribute show films to potential distributors. Joe Bob Briggs and some of the um, behind the scenes stuff on, about the Evil Dead. He he. Joe Bob Briggs saw Evil Dead at the Cannes Film Market in 1981 uh, or 1982, and um, he describes the Cannes Film Market. He's like very very adamant, like this is not the Cannes Film Festival. This is the film market. This is where all the low lifes of the world hang out, and this is they're going. <laughs> they're watching these like genre movies, these exploitation movies. And they're they're bidding on them and buying them, and that's where that's where the Evil Dead premiered, not at the festival, not the not at the prestigious Cannes Film Festival, but at the Cannes Film Market down the street. <laughs> yeah, but he, he taught them so much is the thing. Like he knew so much about it for his being, you know, in even that seedy kind of uh, environment. Sam Raimi says he was the one person in distribution we learned that we could trust who was mm-hmm. actually honest with us at all times. Bruce Campbell tells stories about him coming up to him. He's like. All right, this looks good. Where's your delivery elements? And he's <laughs> like, what the fuck is a delivery element? <laughs> he's like, you gotta have twenty color stills, twenty black and white stills. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I need those with this. And he's yeah. like, hey, can you get me the? Uh... He's like, where's your alternate soundtrack with no dialogue? <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? Why would we have that? <laughs> <laughs> and so he explained he had to have these stills. Uh, they had to go through their 16 millimeter frames and pick pictures and blow them up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the special soundtrack with no dialogue. So you could take it overseas and they could put in their own dialogue. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he was very, I mean, Sam Raimi gives Irvin Shapiro a lot of credit for his early success. Like yeah, he, he said he he fronted all that money by the yeah. way to do all of that stuff. Irvin Shapiro fronted all of that. They even said they had to uh like he became a mentor to them. Like they had to uh they were they were gonna get like cr- photos and stuff done or something. And they're like, How much budget you got for photos? And they were like, and so they like stressed over it forever and came up with like three thousand dollars. So they got back and he said they said they walked to the office and like his secretary like haggled them down and they're like, how much money you got? And they're like 3000. They're like, Oh, I do not need that much money. Let's all right, <laughs> hold on. Let's, let's work this out. Like, you know, it's like, so they were not even trying to rip them off. They were like trying to like be like, you know, being 
trying to help them. Yeah, no, mm. just actually trying to help these guys get their movie out there, and they yeah. believed in it. And uh, they said it was even him that, uh, not to jump too far ahead, but they said it was even him that, like, they had already decided at a certain point, they were like, all right, this is going to do what it's going to do. We'll just move on and get out of horror. We'll do something else. And then Shapiro was the one that's like, no, 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 this is a franchise, man. Like, you got to yeah. do something else with this. And yeah. he started, he paid for to run ads for the Medieval Dead, which would be Evil Dead too, I guess. It, it now, med- Medieval Dead, Medieval Dead is the original title of Army of Darkness. Well, but they said this was at this time. They huh. said that he ran ads for a sequel to Evil Dead called Medieval Dead. Interesting. <laughs> And I thought that was interesting, but they said like where nobody wanted it domestically, Irvin sold it all over England and yeah. uh, finally palace pictures picked it up. Uh, it was treated like a major motion picture over there. And uh, uh, they ended up, he ended up having like some kind of a thing with Steve Woolley from palace pictures and negotiated with him at a Carlton hotel. They said they remember that and uh, got it for like, he bought like 60 K into it and it paid off all their debt for the hmm. thing like basically wow. that's cool i just want to say that i don't i don't i know that medieval dead sounds like army of darkness and it maybe it was but i swear to god in the commentary track they say in the same breath that like they were doing advertising for e- evil dead Irvin shapiro was the one that even pitched like advertising for medieval dead when well they maybe they just reused that name later on when they were doing army of darkness yeah maybe so I don't know. But anyway, they, they say very specifically that uh, Rob, Bruce, Sam, all of them say, like, we would not exist if it wasn't for Irvin Shapiro. I assume that doesn't mean he banged their mom. I just mean, like, <laughs> he's not literally <laughs> that they give him all the praise. So a toast to Irvin Shapiro. Yeah. R.I.P. He's been dead for 40 years. <laughs> not quite. I think he died in the late 80s. 89 I think he died so. in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. When he so, was in his 80s. Yeah, so uh, at, at the con film market, which Irvin Shapiro got the, the film into, one person that happened to be at one of those screenings was Stephen King. Uh, and he reviewed the film in November of 1982 for Twilight Zone magazine, where he called it, quote, the most ferociously original horror film of the year. That might make for a good poster or cover to a anniversary edition or something. Or like every promotional item for yeah. the Evil Dead ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that obviously, you know, Stephen King, very big at the time. That uh, I mean, still is, but at the time he was kind of at really at his peak. So that gave the film a major publicity push and eventually brought a new buyer to the table. Gary mentioned that they'd been in talks with them, but uh, that that this is what brought New Line Cinema into the picture. And New Line Cinema, of course, they would later find major success uh, just a few years after this with the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Uh, but at the time, they were a pretty small operation, very little money, uh, but they did have enough to get Evil Dead into theaters across the country, uh, which they managed to do, even though the MPAA slapped the dreaded X rating on the film mm. uh, due to the violence, which was a kiss of death box office wise. Uh, even though they they filmed, you know, they specifically made a lot of the like the bodily fluids in the Evil Dead not blood colored. Uh, there, there, but it was there's still I guess too many of those bodily fluids for the MPAA, so they gave it an X rating. But New Line ended up releasing the film unrated, which isn't the kiss of death that an X rating is, but it does limit where it could play. A lot of 
Uh, a lot of TV stations won't advertise an unrated film. Uh, a lot of newspapers won't run ads for it. So it does still limit the box office potential of a film. Mm. Yeah, maybe that was the reason that they say, like, uh, you know, the deal they got with New Line would be, like, unheard of today. They said yeah. that, like, you know, there were companies after they saw the success in the UK. I mean, the UK, you know, did what they did. But they, they said, you know, uh, at, at a certain point when it debuted in, like, theaters in uh, England, it was like second only to ET in a lot of the screenings. Which is crazy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, was, it was a hit over there. In yeah. 1983, it was the best selling video in the UK. Yeah. And uh, they said that, uh, you know, Bruce Campbell talks about loving, like seeing like the rankings for like uh, the movies and seeing Evil Dead uh, at, at like two or three or something. And then like number seven was The Shining. And uh, Bruce <laughs> oh, Campbell geez. loved it. And Sam said he hated that. <laughs> Like he did not like, <laughs> but uh, but they, but yeah. So so New Line made the offer that they took uh the theatrical and the sixteen millimeter rights, and they left uh the guys with uh video and TV rights and foreign free and clear. Wow! And wow. Uh, they said that, that is not something that a studio would be willing to do these not days, at all. Mm. including uh, New Line, probably. Yeah, including New Line, but they ended up selling like uh. I forget where they said to like said the video rights to another company that they, they, they said just like splitting it up like that actually helped them at the time. Like mm -hmm. everybody was focused on their own thing and like kept them alive. Well, the unrated evil dead opened officially in the U S on April 15th, 1983 uh, reviews were unusually positive for such a down and dirty little horror film. Uh, Kevin Thomas writing for the LA times called it an instant classic. This is a quote probably the grisliest well-made movie ever. He went on to call it a quote product of the vivid imagination of Samuel M. Ramey for whom this film is clearly just the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and luckily over the last 40 now 40 plus years that this film has been released. Uh, that's pretty much what everyone thinks about it. Right, Gary, nobody on the internet dislikes this movie. No, no, never. You couldn't look anywhere where anybody cares anything uh, anything about movies and find anybody that needs a nap. <laughs> That's not true. There's so many people that need a nap. <laughs> Which it bummed me out because out of all the movies, like some of the things we find, you know, like on Letterboxd and stuff, I mean, I found a lot of like half-star reviews so like oh, it's just there's people just bummed out anyway uh let's start with this one um this review uh says hated it terrible acting i know big plus reviews so i bought it but i hated it terrible acting how did the book and shotgun get upstairs the door where the hands come through you could see they were cutouts why would a woman go outside and wander around the woods when it's pitch black? She's stupid. The blood looked like syrup. There were no cuts underneath it. I could give you more, but enough said other than save your money unless you like false most everything. That is the review. That's a poorly written review is what that is. Yeah. Also, yeah. Upstairs. Is there an upstairs in this at all? What are they? What the fuck are they talking about? That is a, <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't know. Oh, maybe they mean like upstairs from the, from the basement. Yeah, from the basement. Oh, from the basement. So, okay. Yeah. Mm, all right, whatever. Um, Hillary says, oh, my God. That's the title of her review. I'd love to know why everybody posting on this site thinks this movie is so priceless. Come on, people. 
is stereotypically set in the dark in the middle of the woods. And anybody knows what happens in the dark in the middle of the woods. If you ever sit around the fire at scout camp, weird, what? Weird tapes wake up demons in the woods. Some idiot girl decides to go out into the woods to confront the demons and gets raped by a tree. Yeah, you read that right. There's no particular reason for this scene, by the way, except to give obligatory TNA shots that these movies are notorious for. The demons are not only out to rip out your innards, they're also to determine the annoy to annoy the shit out of you before doing so. Otherwise, it's basically a whole lot of fake blood strewn about body parts. Not a bad thing in and of itself, but certainly does not elevate this film to good. <laughs> a person needs a nap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is uh, Tyrone who says, a movie with more notoriety than it deserves. First off, I liked Army of Darkness, essentially the film that put Evil Dead movies on the map. I knew <laughs> what, wait, what? <laughs> I knew of the two prequels, but they were really hard to find for a while. <laughs> the what? I don't know. This is how it started. There off, have been there have been <laughs> seventeen DVD releases of the Evil Dead. They are not hard to find. <laughs> what the fuck uh, are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not really a fan of gore per se, so the reviews that described it as such deterred me for a while. However, I could resist when it was streaming on Netflix and I had some spare time. I know people in these sort of movies are compelled to do stupid things, but this one goes over the top. The most cowardly woman in the group going out alone to look for someone or something was completely out of character. The subsequent violation by a de demonic foliage, foliage was out of place, uncalled for and unnecessarily gratuitous. Then there's the whole notion that evil supernatural forces are trying to kill them. So let's split the injured girl away from the rest so she can take a nap. That's a sound strategy. I'll tell you who could take a nap and that would be a sound strategy. Uh, there are people who are scared by this film. Even think that it's the scariest that they've seen. You probably shouldn't have gone to my high school. You'd just be cowering in a corner somewhere. The gore effects were about as ridiculous as one could imagine. The stop motion at the end had me laughing like I was watching an episode of MST3K. For comparison, it made a Doctor Who episode of the same era look like Avatar. I can imagine this being a cult movie with the camp appeal, but really, really, I love the Avatar reference. I'll be I know. Honest. I think that's, <laughs> that's all nice. part of why I chose it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just it's a callback. Uh, this this is Deanosaurus Rex. Yeah, uh, and they say their title of their review is "Too Much Grits." Uh, too much grits. Too much. Is that what they're using at the end in the in the stop motion? Some grits. There was one part where they tried to pass off gris, grits as some sort of gross bodily fluid, but I was like, nah, them's just some tasty grits. Would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that grits are just mashed corn? I didn't believe it when I heard it. My sister told me and my dad, and we didn't believe her, so we beat her so bad she has to use leg braces now. It turned out she was right all along. We laugh about it every time she falls down because the joints in her braces aren't oiled up, uh, oiled up enough. So they stiffen up. That's the review. Wow. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think those are grits, though. I, let's be honest. Those guys from Michigan have never seen grits. I yeah. got to go with that. Yeah, I think it's cream corn. I think you said that. I think it's cream oh. corn or oatmeal. Mm. Yeah. Well, cream of and, wheat. And, 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 and as Deannosaurus Rex points out, the Grits are just mashed corn, apparently. I honestly don't know. I've seen grits before, but I don't. I, grits are made of corn. Are hominy. They? 
Yeah. Hominy. Mm. That's it. That makes sense. Uh, Sienna says, uh, did not enjoy this at all. The zombie noises were super annoying. There's zero character building. And one of the women is right by a tree. Zero stars. Easy enough. Have, have every one of these, every one of these has mentioned the tree rape. So they far. don't like the tree rape. <laughs> Mercedes says, I have never seen such a collectively nonchalant ass group of people. They literally witnessed the most insane, most disgusting shit ever. And just stood there all like, mm, I wonder if that's, I wonder what's happening over here. Like be fucking for real. <laughs> <laughs> Yavez. I liked this one just because it's quick and to the point. Yavez says, and this was from like a couple of months ago, half star on Letterboxd. They were keeping their cameras in toilets in the eighties in the USA. I don't even <laughs> sure what that means. I don't either, but I liked it. How do you feel about Tori's half star review? She says, can't relate. Cause I ain't stupid. I mean, he's <laughs> got a point. Yeah. He's yeah. got a point. Luckily they, they will lean into the stupidity of, of the main character in this in later films. <laughs> half star. By Habitable, who says, Dumb and stupid. It's funny more than it's terrifying. I laughed out loud when anybody beat up the ghost. It's just hilarious. It bored me at the end because it got serious and bloody. Blech. What ghosts are they talking about? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> did, they, did they watch the wrong movie? <laughs> uh, I got one more, and it's a uh, half star from Sylvestri, whose uh, picture is that Leo meme where he's got the little glass and he's. Of course, laughing, you know. Mm. A whiny, screaming blood fest that is tedious and infuriating. From the score to the characters to the screenplay and the pacing, it's all horrible. That's the real horror and disgust of the movie, not the blatantly outdated gore. That's atrocious. For 90 minutes, a movie to be anything but exciting. I couldn't care less about the characters, and at some point, I just wanted them all to die so the credits could roll. Imagine sitting in a haunted house ride, except that you're logged in it for 90 minutes. Uh, no, you're looped in it. Sorry, you're looped into it for 90 minutes. You get this movie. It's repetitive. It's redundant. This shows that nostalgia is delusional sometimes. For this to be considered a horror classic... I applaud the tolerance of the people who like this movie. If a Pratt is going to tell me the movie was trying to be all of the above criticism, then congrats. They fucking succeeded. That's that that person say. just doesn't like movies is what it sounds like. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand a lot of those criticisms towards the film. I don't think that a movie, I don't think a movie's budget showing is a determinant for the film, not to me, as long as they're using their budget that they do have creatively, you know, does that make sense? And a lot of these people just yeah. seem to be like shitting on the movie because it looks cheap. And I don't know that it's, you still have to admire the craft that goes into it even more. So a little bit on such a limited budget, in my opinion. Yeah. So I've been watching the evil or not the evil Dead. Well, I'm going to be watching the evil Dead movies, but I've also, I've been watching the Hellraiser movies. In fact, I've seen them all. And not the new one that just came out on Hulu, but the one before it. I watched that movie, and I hate that I hate it so much. <laughs> it's just so terrible. And it's, and I tried it, and I, and I was having this thought to myself. So I was like, I'm trying to put it in context, because I hate being negative like that. And uh, but I think my review for Letterboxd that I was typing up the other day that I've put on pause for a second was just about like 
uh, it was something along the lines of this movie feels like you're being waterboarded if waterboarding was somebody sharding on a rag on your face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, but it's because the movie looks like it's like you're watching the people and I feel bad for whoever acted it because it's like, wow, your community theater level okay <laughs> but you're like in but i'm like but this is a studio film like this is a real movie this is supposed to be on a different level and i think about things like evil dead and i watch it and i'm like i cannot imagine what your budget is compared to what the guys that did evil dead had to deal with right and i'm like mm. what the fuck yeah. <laughs> like why is yeah, this I mean, a real movie well there there there's something about the evil dead that's more uh there there's a factor there's a, a magic there that I think comes from the passion and and honestly the raw talent of the filmmakers behind the camera. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is something about The Evil Dead that makes it a movie that people still talk about 40 years after its release. I mean, there are countless kids going to a Cabin in the Woods horror movies. Uh, there are plenty of movies about demonic possession, but there's something about The Evil Dead that makes it stand out from the crowd. Uh, I mean, think about the time when this was released. This was released in the early 80s, the peak of the slasher boom. Uh, cheap horror movies were being pumped out at a rapid rate. Many of those movies have been mostly forgotten or viewed now only for their kind of so bad it's good qualities, you know, mm. uh, but not the evil dead, not by most people other than the, those few that you read, but by most people, this is still viewed as a good movie, despite it's obviously low budget. Uh, clear disregard for the safety of its casting crew. And it, it does, you know, occasionally look amateurish but despite all of that the movie remains relevant so I, I think that the interesting discussion around this movie is why what is it about this movie that makes it still work despite all of those things and i think there are a couple of reasons why the evil dead endures one is that it's it's got kind of this demented sense of humor that you don't get out of these types of movies very often. Mm. Now, the, the later movies in the franchise will turn more into a straightforward live action Looney Tunes, especially part two. Oh yeah. Um, and this one is generally regarded as the one in the series that's actually trying to scare you, you know? Uh, and while this is, I think the scariest of the bunch, it is first and foremost, a spook a blast movie. Uh, Spookablast is a, a term that I love that Sam Raimi coined when he was promoting his return to the horror genre, when he was promoting uh, Drag Me to Hell in 2009. He described Spookablast as, uh, this is a quote from him, like those cheesy carnival rides you get on when you're jerked around in the darkness wondering if a skeleton will pop out. That's how he describes his movies. Uh, you know, it, These are films that he where he wants the audience to scream, whether it's in terror or in laughter you know he, he just wants he's an entertainer he wants yeah. people to have fun the, the more you talk about him or hear about him he sounds like the guy who'd be like the carnival barker or something. he's a huckster yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's exactly just... what he is it's exactly right he's a carnival barker and uh campbell bruce campbell had a, a similar sentiment about the evil dead uh, this is from uh, this is a quote from an episode of the incredibly strange film show which is a, a british show uh that aired in 1988. You can find the entire episode on YouTube. He said, quote, we didn't want to create a movie that would cause kids to have nightmares. That wasn't the goal. It was just to give them a roller coaster ride for 90 minutes and then they could go home and forget about it. 
That's what they were going for. A good time. That's what yeah. they want to make. That's the kind of movies they want to make. And that's the thing that you have to know about Sam Raimi and about Bruce Campbell, for that matter. These guys are entertainers. They got in the film business using horror. Both of them kind of got stuck there for a while, but that wasn't their intention. But they didn't set out to be horror filmmakers. They set out just to give people a good time, regardless of genre. Mm. So Raimi takes this kind of demented sense of humor that's not unlike someone like Joe Dante, you know, and he combines it with gruesome Fulci-esque gore. If you're familiar with the films of uh, Lucio Fulci, Sam Raimi kind of turns it into this movie version of a tilt-a-whirl, you know, where you're scared, but you're having fun, mm. right? Uh, and, and I'm a big fan of someone like, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lucio Fulci. Uh, I'm sure we'll probably do a series on him one day down the line here, but his movies ten do tend to be very like serious and dark. The pacing can be a little slow. So what Raimi kind of does is take the visceral nature of a Lucio Fulci film and turns it into a propulsive, fast-paced, and most importantly, fun ride. Yeah, the skeleton example you gave is perfect for it because it's just like, uh, I mean, it, it is just like he's he's wanting you to like every time something shocking has those, happens on screen, it's not to be like it fucking wrecks your brain with no. PTSD. It's just more like, oh, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> you just, jump and you laugh at yourself for jumping. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the fact that Raimi has a very clear-cut personal style that's already apparent even in his very first film. I think that's a big part of what sets The Evil Dead apart. Uh, it doesn't look like any other horror film made before it uh, or after it, other than a Sam Raimi movie or people riffing on what Sam Raimi does. Mm. Uh, his, his camera work is very inspired. And also, once you know how he got these shots using the shaky cam or the Blanco cam or the Vaso cam, uh, you know, it makes it even more impressive because they had to kind of sort of invent <laughs> camera rigs on a very low budget to be able to do this. Yeah. That, now, that, that's what I was saying. Like with even the Hellraiser thing, not, not to cut you off, but like, it, it's just like, there's a difference sometimes when you see these guys who have very limited resources and just the, what they'll links they'll go to, to just mm -hmm. get the very most out of every penny they have. It's necessity just, necessity it's is the mother of invention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, th th there is, you know, some of the effects do look rather quaint by big budget or modern day standards. That doesn't matter to me, though. And it, it seemed to matter to some of those people that you know, some of those reviews you were reading. But I mean, we've said this many times I, uh, across the history of the show, but I think that's part of the charm. Honestly, uh, I like old school effects. I think it's fun to watch. I, I, I particularly love uh, I like the, you know, the makeup effects, but I one, one of my favorites are the kind of spider webbing, the frame by frame uh, infection going across Linda's ankle, you know, when she gets stabbed in the ankle. That's great. And then you see this little spider webbing of infection yeah. that they, they kind of, it's sort of a stop motion uh, process they're doing there, but I don't, it's very clever. It's a very clever way to do that on a very low budget. Whereas now it would just be a CGI thing that somebody could pump out in an afternoon. And then there you've got the deadites themselves, which I think are, are a pretty cool invention because these aren't zombies, even though Evil Dead does get lumped in with zombie films, even watching some of the behind the scenes stuff, Joe Bob Briggs referred to them as zombies. And I was like, Joe Bob, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but deadites are not fucking <laughs> zombies. <laughs> like yeah. these are demons. <laughs> these are demons who have come to life and their only goal is to their only goal is to torment and kill the film's characters. But unlike zombies, and this is the, the important part, is that they have a personality. You know, zombies are just running on instinct. 
these guys are taunting Ash and Linda and the others, you know, uh, like mm-hmm. her under under the uh, the trap door doing her little sing song. Like, I, I love that they're kind of fucking with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. fun. That's a lot of fun. They're not running on instinct. They're being they're being mean because it's fun to them. Yeah. <laughs> like that's it's like they, that's all they're there for. They just want to purposefully have, antagonistic. Just, yes. Yeah. They're just getting a kick out of it. And I think that <laughs> the Evil Dead is an enduring film for all of these reasons. Uh, but most of all, I think it's the film's DIY spirit that grabs a lot of like true horror fans. Uh, like what we've been talking about, like the the idea of them going into the woods and making this movie with no money and it turning out as clever and creative as it is. You know, this is a movie that was made completely outside of the system by a group of friends who were so passionate about filmmaking that they practically willed it into existence. They didn't, you know, I, I told the story earlier about Sam Raimi not sleeping for three days. Like you don't do that because you, you you're just making something on a lark. Yeah. Like you you have to have a passion for it. Uh, it was fueled by their love of entertaining, lots of blood, well, fake blood, caro syrup, sweat, and tears. And it's a reminder that anyone can make a movie as long as you're willing to put in the work. And I think that's one of the, the main reasons that The Evil Dead is still being talked about. And they're still making sequels to four decades later. Yeah. They made sequels to this? <laughs> <laughs> No, it's you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, this kind of gets into a little bit of uh, what I was going to say when we get to our further viewing section. But yeah, they they believed in themselves. They believed in their skills. They believed in, uh, you know, the research that they did. Uh, they did the legwork on the front end. They they went and got paperwork drawn up like they had contracts. They had uh you know sales agreements and stuff like that it's you know when you put in the work on the front end it makes a lot makes things a lot easier on the back end and they also had they also found someone else to believe in them they got Irvin Shapiro which yeah. they're like i mean they they don't get me wrong they cast that net a lot and drew back mostly nothing until they got Irvin Shapiro and perseverance like, hey, goes a long one. ways yep just need one yeah that's all you need <laughs> What, another crazy thing about this movie, and this is, I mean, sort of, sort of unrelated to effects or anything else, but just interesting with this, with Irvin Shapiro and everything else, is they mentioned in the commentary, and I tried looking this up, and I, granted, I didn't, you know, like go extensive with my research here, but uh, they mentioned uh, Sam talks about this is the first movie he remembers being released day and date, and I was like, what is that? What does that exactly mean? And and it, in looking up, I mean. He's saying like, especially in the UK, when it was released, it was released on video and in the theaters. Uh, Rob Tabert says it was to avoid piracy. They had like a big piracy concern at the time. So they released it in both. And I, and I did not realize that something like that happened earlier on. And if you try to look it up, I mean, it seems like at least in the early Google results, uh, it seems like nobody else realized that that happened early on because they had like, this was a recent thing here in the past little bit during COVID. Uh, so it's just, it, I don't know. Just another, little it is unusual though. Yeah. And just an interesting little fact about it. Yeah. yeah. And the, the film, you know, it, it did pretty well when it was released. It didn't receive like, you know, it received a wide release, but it was playing in drive-ins. It was, it was a big hit on 42nd street in the grindhouse theaters. That's where people were going to see the evil dead. Uh, as Gary mentioned before, this was kind of before the the years of the multiplex, which would come a few years later. 
but it did still face problems with sensors, especially overseas. Uh, you've mentioned the the release in, in England. Well, when it was released on videotape in England, it was confiscated. This was during the Video Nasties era, mm. and this was uh, Evil Dead found itself on the second list release of Video Nasties, uh, despite having been released there theatrically with only a few minor cuts. It was, they, they did cut some footage, uh, mostly the violence, but not extensive. It wasn't extensively censored when it was released in theaters, but once it hit videotape, because they thought they were worried about it getting into the hands of minors, et cetera. I mean, if you want to look at up the history of the video nasties, obviously we don't have to go <laughs> have time to go through all that today. Uh, there are multiple documentaries out there about it, but basically they didn't want these movies to there. They were, there was paranoia that these were the kids were going to go watch these movies that they shouldn't be watching. So they started confiscating and prosecuting people based on these films. Sam Raimi went to court over the evil dead in England, which is insane to me. You know, yeah, and the film might have been a box office smash had it not been released unrated. If this had gotten an R rating and could have played everywhere, imagine how much money it would have made. Uh, but it still managed to gross over a million dollars, which is still a pretty big number for a film that, with post production and promotion factored in, cost about 350 grand to make. I think actual production was closer to 100 to 150 grand. Jeez. But when the Evil Dead really found success with American audiences was when it was released uh, on the then booming home video market. This movie got released on VHS and it was a huge success on VHS. I'm sure that's where most of us saw it for the first time, either on VHS or DVD. Like I joked earlier, this movie's been released more than just about anything else on DVD. I think I've owned like six different versions of it. I still have three different versions on my shelf right now. <laughs> you know? uh, so, that brings me to our further viewing segment, which, by the way, but, just 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 to throw this in there, they do uh, even joke about that on the commentary. They're oh, I'm well sure they aware. do. It's, 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 it's insane like, how many. So, times. if you're listening to this commentary and wondering why you've bought Evil Dead for the fourth fifth time, <laughs> <laughs> it really is sort of insane how many times it's been released. Uh, it was it was kind of a running joke back about I don't know 15 years ago when DVDs were huge. How it just kept getting released over and over in new special editions. Same with I mean the other ones too. Army of Darkness has been released how uh, who knows how many times. Oh yeah, I'm still not even sure what the version is we're gonna supposed to watch. I don't know who knows. I, we'll we'll talk about it. Yeah, but let's say okay, <laughs> let's say this is 1989. I don't know. Uh, you're gonna you're going to a video store. You're going to not Blockbuster. You're going to like your mom and pop, your local mom and pop. Uh, you're going to rent the Evil Dead, but you it's a Friday night. You're going to do a double feature. You rent the Evil Dead. What other movie do you pick for the perfect Friday night double feature to go? Well, you game? just narrowed it down because you said it's in 1989. So I'm, I'm five. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm probably uh, the love bug. <laughs> Because, I mean, I, you know, jumping in for myself, I could throw in, like, I don't know. Okay, it's 1996. You're going into a video update. and <laughs> Bro, you're still not good enough for the ones I wrote down, because <laughs> I'm going, like, 2000s. I'm going, like, Cabin in the Woods. And okay. Cabin, Cabin Fever. in the Woods. <laughs> Both good choices. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, obviously I went for the cabin theme. So, yeah. you know, there's that. Uh, there's, there's plenty of these, I mean, you can say night of the living dead for that matter, because mm -hmm. I mean, also a similar premise in a, in a way, uh, all these like 
lot to the house deals, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking for that theme. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, normally you guys know, I tend to uh, structure my further viewing with leaning towards basically a complimentary story or plot arc or character character development or something like that. Uh, Actually with this one, I, and I've mentioned it kind of already at least twice, I think uh, throughout this episode, the, the DIY uh, young filmmakers, this sort of crash course in filmmaking. Um, That being said, I would actually pair this uh, with similar things. People's first ventures Uh, for me. I mean, there's, tons out there but for me i go uh 1992 el mariachi uh from robert rodriguez yeah um that production has been very well documented he's really great about putting all of his behind the scenes here's how we did it stuff rebel without a crew is like one of the best uh behind the scenes filmmaking books ever written yeah yeah it's it's fascinating absolutely and uh honestly kind of in that same vein is clerks 1994 kevin smith he, he now he doesn't do it exactly the way Robert Rodriguez does it. No, but, but he you know, still like maxed out all his credit cards, like did yeah. whatever it took to get the movie made. And he it, didn't go to it, he didn't like donate plasma like like Robert Rodriguez. I don't right, think. right. <laughs> but uh, you know, he sold. Uh, he's he's mentioned it in you know multiple podcasts and live events and stuff like that. The idea of selling your past to make your future. He mm-hmm. had a, a, he was a big comic book nerd. He had a very big. Um, uh, big comic book collection. He ended up selling off a lot of it, mm-hmm. probably most of it, to to help. He's probably fund the bought movie. it all back at this he's point. Pro- he's bought it all back, of course. <laughs> but uh, but you know that idea of believing in yourself to make this thing happen and having limited resources. Robert Rodriguez t- talks about the idea of take what you've got, and he had a guitar, he had a camera, <laughs> he had a couple friends. And that's what he did. And, yep. and um, clerks, same way. They had access to a store. Yep. So it's a day in the life of, of these clerks. Yeah. I'd and, like, and to, it works. I'd like to say that since Todd stuck to his theme this time, uh, I, I would like to take back Night of the Living Dead and I'll trade it out for something like uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. I think ah. that's what I'll do. Because I feel like, at least when I said, just for clarification, when I said Cabin in the Woods or Cabin Fever, uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Uh, gosh, I don't know. A movie like Slither or something. Mm. I feel like these are like fun horror movies. They're all set out to just be over the top and entertaining. Like yeah. that's they. I feel like they all have the similar mentality behind them. So if I was going for a theme, it'd be like movies like that. Yeah, I mean the the, the first ones that came to mind for me were actually Cabin Fever and Cabin in the Woods because. Evil Dead is the ultimate Cabin in the Woods movie, you know, Mm. and Eli Roth has been very open that Cabin Fever was his homage to Evil Dead. Cabin in the Woods is sort of an homage to every Cabin in the Woods movie ever made, Mm. uh, along with every other horror movie trope ever you know yeah. so i think both i think both of those are good choices i think he legitimately tries to get everybody in there at some point yeah there's a pinhead guy in there except he's got like razors in his head or something yeah. you know uh, there's a werewolf everything's in there anyway uh the other one the off the wall one that i was going to suggest was a movie called bach k zara aka bollywood evil dead it is a 2008 Ooh. i think or so Evil Dead remake made in Bollywood. It's on Tubi, I believe, is where I I started watching it. I say started watching it because I could not get through it. 
so I cannot. <laughs> Why would you recommend it? Wait, so, you couldn't get so through because something so I, came I, up. Yeah, as I was something. saying, I cannot, in good conscience, recommend it <laughs> because <laughs> I could not make it through the whole thing. Uh, but it's out there. <laughs> it's easy to Ooh. find. Uh, Bach B A C H K E Z A R A is how you spell it. Bach Kazara, Bollywood Evil Dead. Did you get uh, so, all that, Kurt? <laughs> but it is out there if you want to watch a bollywood remake of the evil dead it is not good but <laughs> it does exist so the evil dead successfully kicked off the careers of both Raimi and campbell leading to two direct sequels plus a remake in 2013 and a television show that continues that story and then there's a fourth sequel i think it's called evil dead rise that's on the way that uh maybe we'll revisit down the line uh those are the official sequels mm-hmm uh, this is what this is kind of and this is kind of where the direction I want to go after talking about further viewing, because I've got a couple others that I would probably suggest. Uh, so we've talked about the Italian tradition of just calling film sequels to other successful films, even when they have no relation to the original film. We talked about <laughs> this uh, in our Dawn of the Dead episode, because remember, Dawn of the Dead was released as zombie. Then Fulci's Zombie was released as Zombie 2, and then there's Zombie 3, Zombie 4, and there were, none of them are really connected to Dawn of the Dead. Uh, we also touched on it in our James Cameron series, because what my further viewing suggests on that was Shocking Dark, which was released in Italy as Terminator 2, before mm. there was an actual Terminator 2. It's a really weird phenomenon that was going on in Italy in the 70s and 80s. Well, Evil Dead also received this treatment. In Italy, the Evil Dead was released as La Casa, which means for those that don't know. Yeah, it translates to the Casa, the Casa. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As such, Evil Dead 2 became La Casa 2. But before Raimi actually made his third official film in the series, Italian producers managed to pump out La Casa 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. So La Casa 3 was directed by Umberto Lindsay, probably best known for Cannibal Ferox, uh, a lot of other Italian exploitation movies, but that's probably his most uh, widely seen. It was produced by Joe Diamato, who I feel like has come up on the series, uh, on the show here before. And it was released as Ghost House in the U.S. Uh, Diamato also produced La Casa 4, which was released outside of Italy as Witchery, and stars Linda Blair, and David Hasselhoff. Oh, yeah. Get me in on that. <laughs> now, I watched I watched Ghost House today, earlier today. I will be watching Witchery soon. I've not seen it yet, but Ghost House is pretty damn fun. If you're a fan of Italian horror movies, which means really awkward dialogue because it's being translated to English. Um, pretty, let's say, inconsistent performances. Um, <laughs> a really weird vibe, mostly due to the score and some pretty fucking gnarly gore, especially in the last act of the movie. It's really fun. Has nothing to do with the Evil Dead. Uh, it's set in a house. Um, that's about the only... That's about, it. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. The house is actually the same house from Lucio Fulci's House by the Cemetery. They filmed it at the same place, even oh. though the movie's set in Massachusetts. <laughs> but uh, it's worth checking out. There's a lot of talk about ham radios in it, which I guess the Italians just thought Americans were really into ham radios at the time. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, I would I would say check it out. I'm going to watch Witchery at some point in the next couple of weeks, and maybe I'll report back on that. But that wasn't the end of it. La Casa 5 was also known as Beyond Darkness outside of Italy. It was directed by Claudio Fragasso, 
probably best known as the director of Troll 2. Yeah. Uh, Michael Stevenson, mm-hmm. the little kid from Troll 2 who directed the documentary about it, Best Worst Movie. He's also in La Casa 5. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're not even done yet, Gary. So <laughs> La Casa 6 was nothing more than a retitling of House to the Second Story. <laughs> House to the Second Story had come out in the U.S. years earlier. It actually came out the same year as Evil Dead 2. Then it, once it was finally released in Italy, they just released it as La Casa 5. It is <laughs> at least called The House, or <laughs> no, at least there's that much. I and, love that Italy does not give up. They don't. Who cares? (laughs) Uh, And then there was a movie called The Horror Show that was directed by James Isaac. He would later helm Jason X. Though you know, Jason goes to space. Jason X. Yeah. Uh, This the horror show directed by James Isaac, produced by Sean S. Cunningham, another Friday the Thirteenth guy, Uh, and uh, it starred Lance Hendrickson, hey, uh, and Brian James, who we're going to talk about on our next episode, Road Dog. Uh, and it, well, <laughs> different one. <laughs> so not so few people are going to get that joke. <laughs> uh, but it was inexplicably released in Australia. The horror show was as House Three. I don't know why, but it was released as House Three over in Australia. So naturally, the Italians decided to release it as La Casa Seven. And that, my friends, is the brief history of the unofficial Evil Dead sequels. So if you really want some further viewing and you really want to dig into some weird shit, watch La Casa 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. All right. Like you you just punished me with further viewing. All right. Honestly, like House 2 is fun. I've seen House 2. That one's fun. Uh, I, I just watched uh the 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 ghost house one and it's pretty fun witchery's got linda blair and david hasselhoff in it so i don't know how i'm not gonna like that one yeah Uh, so uh so far we're we're doing all right i don't know anything about the horror show so we'll maybe i'll have to watch that one i'll (laughs) so of course uh we we will over the course of the series be talking about the official sequels to the evil dead uh but for our next episode we're going to be discussing Sam Raimi's initial brush with Hollywood, his first quote unquote official studio film, the one that he was so unhappy with that he doesn't even consider it part of his filmography. Uh, that film, uh, the subject of our next episode, is the lost Sam Raimi Coen Brothers collaboration, Crime Wave. I am excited about this because I've never seen it, and I can't imagine how Sam Raimi and the Coen Brothers made a movie that Sam Raimi doesn't want to claim. Well, there's quite a story behind it, so, <laughs> and it is not Sam Raimi's fault. <laughs> I believe this, that's what we'll say. Nice. So that's our next episode. Uh, you can find Crime Wave streaming. It's uh, as of this recording, it's on Tubi, Redbox, Redbox, like streaming. There's a there's a Redbox rental app on yeah, Roku. somewhat like Voodoo and stuff. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Prime Video, Apple TV, it's everywhere. Just go fucking go to justwatch.com and just look it up. It's easy to find. I, I've got the Blu-ray from Shout Factory, um, so it's it's very easy to find. Just look up Crime Wave or head to our website. I'm sure we'll have a link to where you can stream it somewhere on there. Uh, that's all I've got, guys, for Sam Raimi, part one of, I don't know, seven? I don't know how many episodes we're doing. We'll figure yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll get there. Well, until then, guys, where can you be found on the internet? I'm going to suggest you just follow me at this is Gary Horn. That is what you should do. 
Thanks, Gary. <laughs> uh, I strongly you... suggest it. <laughs> if you like Star Trek, uh, please join us for Computer Resume Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for some reason. Uh, it's on all of the socials at Computer Resume. You can find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. I'm all on right. there. I've watched it. I've watched the last You're... episodes of Enterprise. Wow. Is Enterprise over? Yeah. Oh, man. What's next? Yeah. Up next, uh, I've got a couple of uh, bonus episode type things, but we'll be doing, um, we'll actually be doing uh, Duncan Jones Moon with uh, the guys from Computer, Re- uh, with the guys from Cinema Shock. <laughs> yeah. But what's next on the Star Trek thing? Oh, next on uh, Star Trek? Uh, TOS? We- uh, actually, next is the Discovery, Discovery, or Strange New Worlds. Right. Actually, like... we'll be covering the Cage. We'll be covering the the pilot episode of the Cage because the way the chronology falls, that actually happens earlier in Pike's career. So we mm. actually go to we actually go to the Cage, and then we go to Strange New Worlds. But that's after. Actually, we go we go the Cage. Season one and two of Discovery, and then Strange New Worlds. Well, how do you manage? What about when you you're caught up on Strange New Worlds, but it hasn't yeah. aired another season yet? I, I said that too. I <laughs> well, I, I'll I, be doing I'll be doing uh, Discovery and Strange New Worlds. I'll just be doing those one episode at a time. Both of those series are serialized, so it's actually going to be easier to do it that way. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that's the plan for now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Plus, Paramount. I've got bonus episodes. Paramount's like just fucking up your plan, is what they're exactly. doing. Exactly, because they're they are in the Star Trek business. <laughs> they sure, are. it's not it's not slowing down now. No, wow. it's not. But we're also covering uh, the pilot episode of Doctor Who, and there's a documentary. Wait, the pilot episode of Doctor Who, like the original, the original from 1963. Todd, yeah, we're going to talk about this on the bonus, but I got to know what your strategy is. It's, yeah, we'll talk about it on the bonus episode. It's Star Trek adjacent. Okay, well, <laughs> you can find me at Justin underscore Bishop, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox. You can also find the show at cinema underscore shock or at cinemashock.net. Uh, there you can find all of our uh, episode archives. You can find our merch. You can find links to our Discord, pretty much everything you want to find on there. I also just started a Cinema Shock movie club uh, on Facebook. It's on Facebook and our Discord where we'll uh, we'll pick a movie every week that is not one of the movies we're talking about on the podcast. We'll sometimes uh be related like this week we talked about intruder uh which uh stars sam raimi uh well features sam raimi with a cameo by uh by bruce campbell and is directed by scott spiegel i noticed my wife jumped in on you saying it starred bruce campbell i know you know you gotta it's on the dvd cover so you gotta say it (laughs) even though he he literally has one scene in it but there's a fun scene and uh it's a very fun movie uh intruder's a a lost gem i, would I was I, I would i would say that true uh intruder is is criminally underrated yeah. and like you said a lost gem the wife and i stumbled on it for some reason a few years ago and we watch it i we've watched it a few times now so yeah it's I mean, it's, like, it's some of greg nicotero's best gore work ever ooh. i think it's 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 pretty awesome it's nice. a lot of, it's a lot of fun it's That's a fun. slasher movie set in a grocery store i mean it's great oh. <laughs> anyway uh until next time May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. I believe I've made a significant find in the Kandarian ruins. A volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices. Funerary incantations. It's entitled Naturum de Montum.
roughly translated, Johnny has the keys. I don't think that's the translation. I know. I it, it, sound, it does sound like if you'd have found some Latin for Johnny has the keys. It, it does sound off, doesn't it? <laughs>